Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 29th, 2015. This is episode 1584 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Uh, your time for your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Call from a quiet area, make your point, or ask your question immediately up front in one or two sentences. Then give your follow-up details. That gives you the best shot to get on the air probably within a week or two. If you've made calls and you haven't heard yourself on the air within a week or two, you may either got screened out due to quality issues, you got screened out because I just didn't feel like that question that week and I was tired or something, or you got screened out just due to call volume and I never got to your call. That happens all the time. I'm sorry. I can only screen so many calls a week. Anyway, uh, that is the formula to get on the air. Again, quiet location. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you got some bars on your phone. There will be nobody on the other end of the line tell you that you are being you know broken up or have static or something like that anyway we also do expert question call or ask questions for the expert council on these shows for now uh, once the, the the summer uh, workshop with uh, perma ethos ends and I get back here into the full swing of things I am probably going to bifurcate this to where we're going to have an expert panel show every week and a call-in show every week I think there's plenty of volume to get that stuff done and that will get me back to answering more of your questions for me as well remember to ask a question of our expert panel what you can do is call that que- or actually email me that question with TSP expert question in the subject line send that email to jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com tell me which council member it's for or just say I have a question for an expert council member you decide and I will see about getting your question out to one of the council members. This format is working a lot better than having you guys call your questions in. It's working better for me. It's working better for the council members. Today I have 11 different council members represented on the council. We never achieve that even once doing it with calling calls. So I think this is working a lot better. And again, the formula, TSP expert question in the subject line, TSPC expert question in the subject line. And then send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Just like the calls, ask your question in one or two sentences, then give follow-up details. Trust me, this works so much better. I'm trying to do all I can to get as many of your questions and concerns on the air as possible. The faster I can screen, the more I can determine what goes on the air each week, and the more I can get on the air each week. Um, with that, before I take your questions and, uh, and ask some questions of the expert panel myself, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it. But you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. 
There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, let's take a look at the history segment for today. We have William, the silent is silenced. We have, was it really worth flipping off the Tsar of Russia? And the last call, the lost colony of Virginia, the mystery begins. These are all great. I'm going to read Flipping Off the Tsar of Russia because I have a totally different take than Alex, and I like that, especially if I can bring it to modern day and give you a life's lesson with it. So, Ivan the Terrible, and this is the year 1584 because that's the year of the episode, has a massive stroke. While playing chess. See, no good comes from playing chess. I'm just kidding. I like chess. This ends his reign of terror, opening the way for his son, age 26, to take control or non-control. Fedor I is a simple man that likes traveling the land, ringing church bells. Calling him an idiot would be an insult to real idiots. Naturally, he has a regent to run things. His name is only important to people who watch cartoons as children in the 1960s. The regent will prove to be a freckless leader. The Romanov dynasty will gain control in 1613. It will be a welcome relief because between now and then, about 2 million people are going to die from starvation due to multi-year famine. These troubling times will haunt Russia's mind for centuries to come. My take by Alex Strug, well, 2 million people dead, and I'm going to talk about a silly cartoon. 
I apologize in advance. The name of the regent of the Tsar of Russia at that time was Boris Gondanov. He became the Tsar after Fedor's death. The Little Ice Age was the cause of freezing temperatures in Russia that killed crops during the summer months. But Tsar Boris got most of the blame at the time for the troubles, for the time of troubles as they were called. Regarding cartoons, those who enjoyed the Rocky and Bullwinkle show will remember the two comic spies, Boris and Natasha. The name of Boris Badenov is a mocking play on Tsar Boris. He had been dead for over 400 years, but someone still thought it was worth the trouble to flip him the bird. Amazing. My take by Jack Spirico. I believe in studying history and learning for, for, from it. I believe in going, we've seen this before, some idiot's going to do it again, recognize it when it happens, and either adapt to it or prevent it. Okay, That's where history makes sense. I believe in studying history because it's interesting. What I do not believe in is blaming your current situation on past history if it's no longer affecting you. And a lot of people can learn a lot of things from that right there. There are so many people saying, but this and but that about their past. Unless it's actively being done now, it's up to you to stand up, man up, and get your shit done. That is my take by Jack Spirico. Next up, let me ask you to consider joining the Member Support Brigade today. We actually have a call today about some benefits that one listener has gotten from the MSB, so I won't say much about it other than do consider joining. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount, just email me. Uh, with TSPC service discount on the subject line, email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Do that before, not after you join. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more there. And I'm just keeping racking up the discounts for you guys. My goal is to get you another 20 people this year. I don't know if I'm going to pull it off, but I'm going to try and to go totally off the reservation with some stuff to get you some things that just aren't here yet to find new things that you do not have access to through the MSB. There are things that you would either like to purchase or you're purchasing anyway and get you discounts. That's my job, to make sure that this dadgone thing is worth more than you pay for it. And then if you also think the show's worth a couple dimes an episode, hey, you're choosing to, uh, to basically support the show because you love it and get your money back, and then the vendors get business they wouldn't have, Win, win, win. The triple win. That's what the MSB is all about. All right, with that, real quick, I wanted to, before I get into your calls, remind you, we do have a June workshop. It is Thursday, June 11th through uh, Sunday, actually Saturday, June the 13th, and then people still kind of hanging around on Monday or Sunday morning and stuff like that in, in West Virginia. And I would love to see some of you guys there. We're doing this through Perma Ethos. This is not a Jack Spirico TSP event. This is a Perma Ethos summer event. It is going to be awesome. Just a little bit about what we're going to be doing up there. Kevin, we're doing a butchering workshop on the bonus day on Thursday. Uh, Kevin and I are going to butcher a pig we call Skinny Mama. She's not so skinny anymore. She eluded the butcher since last fall. But Kevin and I are going to go pop her with a 308. And we're going to show you how to take a pig apart quick. Deer hunter style. Jesse's going to run a workshop on butchering chickens, rabbits, and ducks. Uh, we're going to do a sausage making workshop, and a lot of that stuff is going to be served to our students through the rest of the weekend. We're going to be doing swale construction, laser level and A-frame level usage, plowing swales, shaping swales, planting. 
We're going to have plant grafting and misting system instruction, mini greenhouse construction. John Dowie's coming in from New England to talk about that. Patrick Rohrman's going to be there doing sharpening workshops. He's got a package deal on the Genesis knife, two sharpening stones, and a DVD for $199. It's $100 off the normal price. Uh, he's going to want to know if you want to buy one before you come, so get in touch with us about that if you're coming and are going to want to buy the Genesis knife package. Chris Prater is going to bring his forge and teach you how to make a knife from scratch and how to go all in and get started making knives for under 100 bucks. How about that? Soils and more, Mike Vertries. This guy has been going through Elaine Ingham's uh, courses on soil science and soil management. I'm so impressed, and I'm so happy in the investment that we made in that gentleman and what he's learned and what he's got to bring to the table. He's going to give a presentation to you on how to get your plants and your pastures off of welfare, as he calls it, to stop using inputs, to develop systems that become regenerative instead of just sustainable. We're going to have a barter blanket. We're going to eat like kings. There'll be much ado do about adult beverages. This is going to be awesome. I hope to see you there if you're not there yet. One more thing before I get to your first call today, and it's a cool one, from West Virginia. Imagine that. Um, and guess who it might be. Anyway, we are closing pre-orders on the Duck the System t-shirts today. So if you want to get a Duck the System t-shirt in the first run from TSP Gear, today is the day to order. We have them in brown and green. It's my way of telling the system to Duck off. It is a triple entendre, yet it is family friendly. If you don't think of the third one, you can put into there. But it really is a cool thing, and uh, I think it's it, the, the Duck Chronicles has inspired a lot of people. And this is a good way to spread the word about it. They're not that expensive. Please consider getting one, wearing it out and about, and telling people about the, the 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 awesome stuff that we can do with ducks in our in our ecosystems. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take that first call today. Like I said, it does come from us from Wild and Wooly, West Virginia, and I bet some of you guys who are long term listeners know exactly who's called in. Uh, our minor celebrity himself, John in West Virginia. Hey, Jack, John in West Virginia. Simple question. I have no green thumb whatsoever, but I would like to grow something. What's the easiest thing I could grow with the highest yield of a edible food product that I could get off of it? That's it, man. Appreciate it. Well, it's, that's a tough question, but there is uh, a couple different answers that I have for you depending on what your goals are. Uh, if it would be an annual plant, um, I, I have to tell you that I think the best ROI anybody can get from planting annuals from seeds that I personally found, not just from raw yield, but duration of use of yield without any extra steps. In other words, we can grow an awful lot of cucumbers, and we even have a question about what to do with them all today for Erica Strauss. But you have to do something with them. You can't just pick a cucumber off of your cucumber vine and go stick it on the shelf and leave it there for very long before it turns into an icky, gooey mess. There is one thing that is the most bulletproof vegetable that I've found that you can do that with that's extremely versatile and will grow just about anywhere in the United States, and it is the Waltham butternut squash and you could hop on over to a place like neseed neseed.com that's another company i'm working on getting you guys a discount for i got to talk to those guys this this coming week and see if i can knock this thing out this is a place where you would buy and you can go buy a pack if you want to but this is a place more more people that shop at this place are the kinds of people that are going to buy like an ounce or four ounces or a pound of something 
And they do have a lot of hybrids and stuff like that, but they also have a lot of heirlooms. And Waltham Butternut is a very old heirloom squash. And to do what I'm going to tell you how to do, what you want is a wide variety, huge genetic diversity of seed, and you don't want to give a damn if 90% of it dies. So if you went over to, to any seed, you can buy four ounces of butternut squash seed for 10 bucks. Okay? You're going to spend that one time. Okay? And if you really wanted to do this, if you have enough land to, to make use of it all, you can buy a pound for $20. $19.95 for a pound of butternut seed. If you can find somebody that has a whole bunch of butternuts that were grown without other squash around, you can just get seed for free and get a pound of seed easy. This stuff produces a lot of seed. It's big seed. It's easy to, to, to clean and work with. But for all intents and purposes, a good, clean, reliable, high germination rate seed, go buy it from any seed or another company. $20. Bucks. Now, a butternut squash, not even an organic butternut squash, conventionally grown butternut squash, And the supermarket sells for about $1.69 a pound. $1.69 a pound. An average squash weighs two or three pounds at least. Some of them four or five pounds. I've, I've grown them up to seven pounds. Let's call it three pounds. Okay, and let's knock it down to a dollar. Okay, let's say it's a dollar a pound and an average three pounds. We've gone smaller and less. Okay, so ten of them. Ten of those little squashes would cost 30 bucks to buy. So if you get 10 squashes, you've got a 30% return on your 20 bucks on a pound of seed. You're going to get more than 10. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to take that pound of seed and you are going to scatter it everywhere that you don't mind squash growing. Or four ounces of seed. Every, along your fence line. You go along your fence line with a screwdriver. Dig a hole, stick two seeds in it. Dig a hole two inches away, stick two seeds in it. Dig a hole, stick two seeds in it. You can literally do one hole every two to three seconds. The whole fence line, the tree line, the bush line, the vacant lawn across the street that nobody does anything with. Just throw it and cover it with something. And then leave it alone. Do nothing. Ha, ha, ha. Let it grow. A pound of seed is, I don't even know what the seed count is for butternut. But I know, because I bought four ounces of it to do this with, it's a lot. It's a whole bunch. It's tens of thousands, probably, to the pound. Okay, now, what's going to happen is, like, nine out of ten of them are either going to not get enough water, not get enough nutrient, get too much sun, get too little sun, get attacked by pests, whatever, and die. And about ten percent of them are going to survive. Okay. What's 10% of a, of 10,000? That'd be a thousand. You're going to probably end up killing some. Some of them are going to compete with each other and kill each other. You're going to have some that just don't look very good and you're going to just yank them out of the ground and let them, like they're producing little bitty tiny squashes or something. Yeah, it's not going to yank it. Okay. And at, by the end of the year, you're going to be throwing butternut squashes at any car that drives by your house with the window down. Like a football, tossing it through like a quarterback. Like, hey dude, here's a squash. Boom. <laughs> right in the chest. Because you'll have that many. And that's awesome. You can cube this. You can stir fry it. You can steam it. You can mash it. You can fry it like a potato. You can make soups out of it. It is a great, high-quality uh, product. And every time you cut one open, you're just going to yank the seeds out of it, do a little bit of uh, cleaning to get those seeds away from the, the guts of it, if you want to call it that, throw it on a paper plate and stick it in the sun. And if it's wintertime and it's cold outside, stick it in a sunny window. As soon as they're dry, put them in a Ziploc bag. You're going to get a kabillion seeds. And next season, just scatter them again. 
And occasionally, like if you see a squash, you're like, I got too many. So just leave one lay there. Let it rot to the ground. It'll, it'll, some of those seeds in that squash will grow back. And what you're going to be doing is developing with almost no effort whatsoever a land race, the John in West Virginia butternut. Okay. The, the squash with the genetics that are most adapted to your environment are going to be the ones that survive and produce good fruit. And you're not going to pick the big ones, the little ones, whatever, because you don't want to do all that. You're not a green thumb. You don't want to jack with it, right? So you're just going to save all the seed you can and just throw it all on the ground again next year. Do that for a few seasons. You will develop plants that will be so specifically regionally adapted with such an intensive amount of genetics. And the only thing you really might want to do is when you have really small ones, Unless you have a use for really small ones, like if you just want more big ones, just don't save the seed from the little ones. Then you're only, you're only selecting for two things. Size, and you're not even selecting for certain sizes or shapes, just not too small, and you're selecting for survivability. You can go so far so fast with that. And then the beauty of this plant, right? The beauty of this plant, I took one of these, I harvested in August, in August, I want you to think about this, in August. And I said, I wonder how long one of these can really store. I set it in a window that got sun on a window seat at my house in uh, in Arlington, Texas, and we used to live there. It sat there till my wife's like, what do you, what, why, why is it still there? And I said, I want to see how long it will survive with no anything special. Like, not even cool, not even a root cellar, not even out of the light, just sitting there. And she goes, oh, okay. That was like the end of September. So she's thinking, how long can this crazy science experiment go? In May, in May of the following year, it started to develop black spots on it and get kind of soft and kind of go off. And we took it outside. My son and I have this cool video of me with a, a Gurkha Kukuri uh, slicing it in midair. And I can't find that video. But that's because it was like, okay, now the science experiment is over. So it lasted from August till May with no special considerations whatsoever. This means when you have that huge yield, you can stack them in a well-aerated uh, closet or cabinet or if you've got a cellar. And you can have them for six, eight, nine months until your next ones start producing almost. I can't think of anything else that really would do that. There's other squashes and, and what have you that would do that okay, and you might want to do long-neck pumpkin in your area as an alternative. The thing about butternuts is they're relatively small so that they are a single or two meals when you cut one, because once you cut it, then it's all, all bets are off. They store well, and they have very dense vines. So squash vine borers are like, I want to put my babies in there, and the baby's like, we can't live on this. So you don't lose them to squash vine borers. So that would be my number one pick for ease of use, developing a strain. As a perennial, you would be hard to beat in your climate, John, than to get a couple Chester and a couple Triple Crown Blackberries and plant them. They have no thorns. Prune them out once a year. Can't hardly kill them. Spread on their own. Blackberries I'm getting off mine right now are as big as my thumb. I mean, you fill the quart jar with them pretty daggone quick. You can set them on a tray, put them in the freezer, freeze them solid, then throw them in plastic bags. No real work to preserving them. Uh, and they can be done so many different things with them. So that would be my top perennial for ease and large-scale production. Obviously, an apple tree or a pear tree or whatever produces a lot. But there you go. So bet that's a question you guys didn't expect me to answer that way. And how the heck can Jack talk for eight minutes about butternut squash? Because I just taught you how to do it with anything. I'm just saying that would be a good one because you can store it. If you take that formula and do it with anything with seed, you'll develop a land race. 
And that will be the most adapted plant to your property, and you'll have that production year after year, and it'll only get better. With that, let's go ahead and take a question for an expert panel member. Pretty simple one here. This is for Ben Falk. We cleaned some geese this year, Ben. And I know you've been using geese for a meat yield. And they were older geese. They were all over a year. But plucking them was a nightmare to the point where we actually ended up skinning a couple of them. I didn't like doing that. I love the skin as a resource. But I'm wondering how you handle and manage your geese. If you think maybe it's just that we let the geese uh, live too long, uh, whether you're using a mechanical plucker or not, we did it all by hand. That might have been part of the issue as well. So, Ben, with, uh, with, with geese now making up a significant meat yield for you, how do you handle all that? Hey there, Ben Falk with Hull Systems Design and the Expert Council. Uh, we've been keeping geese uh, for a few years, processed for a few years, and um, they're always first-year birds, so they're not, you know, multiple years old, which I think does help in terms of processing. But geese are notoriously more difficult than chickens um, to uh, defeather. Um, I think even more difficult than ducks as well. Although we don't, we don't eat our ducks; they're just for eggs. You need warmer water, um, I think a little more intense detergent is what we've used, but definitely warmer water, and we have used the plucker, and they just take more work to defeather. Uh, I don't think anyone's figured out a way around that, although I'm sure it's possible. Some people have, I think, skinned geese to just get around that fact, but the skin's great. It has a lot of great fat that you render down. We've also pulled some down off of them and harvested the down because that's super valuable stuff. It's the best insulation in the world, basically, for a lot of applications. So um, it's, it's challenging. There's no way around that with geese. Um, it's probably the biggest disadvantage to geese as a meat bird is that is the processing. But good luck with it. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks, Ben. I, I know it's a short answer, but it's a direct answer, and I think that it kind of confirms my thing. We're probably not going to be doing geese for meat any further. We're going to go to ducks. Um, I do think I have a processor that will do ducks. I know they do chickens. It seems like they do ducks. We have a language barrier issue, and I haven't been able to get down there to find out. But I pretty much decided that if I don't have a processor, I have got to get a mechanical plucker. Um, I cannot spend time manually plucking. I think that's pretty good advice for anyone who's going to do it on a regular basis, especially anything beyond chicken. Chickens are not that bad. It's time-consuming, but it's not that bad. Waterfowl seems to be a lot tougher to deal with. I would just pretty much advise anybody right now that if you're going to be cleaning a goose that's more than a year old, that what I would personally advise you to do, if you want to pluck anything at all, do what Kevin Keegan from Permaethos says to do. Go ahead and, and hit them with the hot water. Pluck the breast, debreast it with the skin on, so you can cook the breast with the skin on. Skin, pull the legs and thighs out, and 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 whatever else you want out, deskinned, and you've had it. And I found that it's kind of surprising to me. A chicken wing and a duck wing tend to have a significant amount of meat on them, really, for the size they are. A goose wing has the we would call a drumette and chicken, a pretty good amount of meat. That second piece, the 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 kind of the the mid arm point with the two, double bone. Man, it just doesn't seem worth it. It just doesn't. I, I'm kind of shocked on that. Anyway, um, what I want to go ahead and do now is actually answer another question for a caller. Uh, this one I'll go ahead and play, and I'll come back and answer it myself, and then I'll have uh, two in a row for expert council members. Hey, Jack. This is Richard. I just wanted to leave two comments about two different uh, MSB uh, companies. Um, 
The first one, Bob Wells Nursery. I had no issues whatsoever. I actually forgot the code on the first one, and they refunded it to me, no problem, when I contacted after. And I did a couple orders, both a couple hundred dollars each, plus berries, fruit trees, that good stuff. And uh, no problems. All the stuff that showed up was great. All of it's uh, still surviving. Um, no issues at all, so very, very happy with the product. Second one was Marsh Creek Farms, which I actually bought from um, prior to them becoming a, a MSB a discount um, company. Uh, and all their stuff was absolutely great. Uh, there was a slight performance with one of my, my orders, but their, their customer service was superb. Sent me a bunch of extra stuff uh, on top of uh, what I had ordered, and they came in quickly and great and everything like that. Can't say anything better about Marsh Creek. Uh, Farms or Bob Wells Nursery. So thanks for finding these uh, great companies for us, and I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's always great to hear. Before I talk that, about that a little bit, um, I do want to uh, say that while I was listening to Ben Falk, I uh, went and uh, looked up the count of seed for butternut for my answer for, for uh, John West Virginia, and a pound of butternut seed is six. 1,265 seeds. So even if you cut that down to uh, four, four ounces, if we take that number and divide it by four, you're at, what, like 1,500, 1,556 and change, quarter? 1,556 seeds to a quarter pound. Uh, call it 1,500. 1,500 seeds for 10 bucks. I think you can get some of them to grow. Anyway, on the report in on uh, Bob Wells and Marsh Creek, I think one of the things you, you see with our vendors, um, you know, I thought at one time I wanted to get some bigger vendors, you know, get like Bass Pro Shops or something for you guys. And I realized something about dealing with these smaller companies. Now, Bob Wells is a multi-million dollar company. Uh, they have, you know, a dozen full-time employees, but they're still small compared to, you know, Cabela's Bass Pro, something like that. And that means the customer service can be individualized, and you, they can spend the time to actually fix things if there's a mess up, and that's really important to me. Uh, Marsh Creek is a small, small company, but you know you can get stuff there at a price you can't find anywhere else. You can get it year round. To be able to buy Comfrey and get it in December, it, it's, it's difficult to do from a lot of places. So to be able to get the quantity for the price and uh, the free shipping and everything that goes with it, a discount. I mean, you know, you save like 15 bucks on one order there if you want to grow a lot of Comfrey. So uh, you know that's. Three months of MSB in, in one. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to do for you guys. And, and I'm glad to hear that it's working out. Um, next up, I wanted to ha ha pose a question to expert council member Nicholas Ferguson. We have a listener that wants to know about propagation of lilacs. They have them all over the place. I've sent you some additional details about it that I'll let you explain in the answer, Nick. But what they're looking to do is they have some lilacs that are no longer producing flowers. They want to kind of reboot that system and produce more lilacs. Uh, and I imagine a lot of things that you would do to reproduce lilacs could be done to reproduce other flowering bushes. So what say you, Nick, on this one? Hey there, this is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer Jerry's question on uh, propagating lilacs from cuttings. All right, um, there's a couple methods. You can propagate these from softwood cuttings, and you'll want to do that in the spring just as soon as buds start forming. Um, and you'll dip them uh, in a indole butric acid, uh, just, you know, uh, That's what most of the normal rooting hormones are. You can get the, the powdered stuff from most uh, most nurseries. Will have that, um, and you'll dip them 
and stick them in a mist bed, you might find some success just sticking them in a, a five-gallon bucket with some uh, some decent potting soil in there and covering that with a, a wet, uh, not a wet, a white um, trash bag. Um, and sticking that in the shade, kind of some diffuse light under a tree. You don't want that to get hit with, with full-on sunlight. Um, you'll, you'll probably see some success with that. But what I would suggest would probably be the easiest, quickest way to get, um, pieces of that, that tree to turn into flowering bushes again will be to get, um, root cuttings. And you just dig up the roots and, um, you want to make sure that when you cut these pieces about four inches long, that you, you keep the end of the root, the, the terminal end pointed down, and then the end that was closest to the base of, of the bush is pointed up, and you just stick that out of your, your potting soil, just about an inch of that root is sticking out of the potting soil, and that's gonna heal over, and form buds, and it's going to leaf out right there. And you just need about four-inch pieces, and you can chop those roots up into however many pieces you want, just like with comfrey. And you keep the polarity correct, so that the 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 part that is closest to the base of the the bush is sticking up out of the potting soil. And man, I pot those up in in pots, you know, one gallon, three gallon pots. And stick them somewhere shady and keep them watered every once in a while. Just don't let them dry out. Don't let them get completely soaking wet. And you should be able to turn those into flowering lilacs in no time at all. So this has been Nick Ferguson from the Expert Council calling in to answer that question on lilacs. Sorry if my voice is sounding rough. I've been sick, but um, I hope you... uh Hope you find some success with those lilacs. Good stuff, as always, from Nick Ferguson. Um, I have now a question from a listener for Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer. This is from Obi in West Georgia. He has a question concerning pollen. Specifically, does pollen's potency degrade over time? Uh, and again, he lives in West Georgia. He uses pollen to help treat allergies and wants to make sure that he's doing everything right. So... Michael, not just harvesting pollen, but more so the store, probably storage and duration for pollen storage uh, from your bees. What say you on that, sir? Hey, Obi from West Georgia asking about pollen and storage life. Well, OBB pollen is rich in antioxidants that fight spoilage. What is forgotten about the antioxidants is if they're used up filing spoilage, they aren't available for humans, animals, or bee nutrition. It's always best to keep your pollen product in a cool place, even in a refrigerator, where it is not exposed to any light or heat. Pollen extracts are known to be stable for 3 to 15 months at 4 degrees Celsius. 3 to 6 months is recommended in a fridge for optimal freshness, but it can be kept up for a year if done correctly. If you're talking about pollen patties or pollen substitute for feeding your bees, it can be sealed in a freezer bag and frozen up to 2 years. Make sure there is no mold when using it, and always keep it dry when thawing out. If you want pollen for hand pollination, make sure your pollen is dry. Put it in a Ziploc bag 
with a little silica gel packets and then store in a refrigerator up to five months. You'll have it used for pollination for your plants and use it for the plants that you took it from. Remember, if you're using reverse pollination traps so the bees are going through a maze to make static electricity to collect pollen that you place in front of the hive, make sure that it's dried freshly and picked almost daily and then dried. This is the best results for the static electricity build. When unthawing your pollen, make sure you use it in the next 24 hours. You have to use it almost immediately and you can't refreeze it. That uh, pollen only is really good for 24 hours after uh, thawing it out. And if you're going to use it to pollinate your plants, uh, check the uh, receiving of the plants. That uh, Some plants uh, are, are, are good in the morning, some are nighttime plants. Uh, the bees know uh, the best times. But if you're reading the floral charts and your times and dates, uh, usually I do hand pollination or even the trap feeding pollination between 9 and 10 a.m. Unless it's one of the uh, foliage type uh, Velesis uh, that opens at night. Uh, also throw some of that pollen in a good source for natural, natural yeast. That uh, If you're throwing it in your brewing, it uh, really speeds up the fermentation by using pollen because of the natural yeast. Uh, throwing in a good cup of pollen in a five-gallon batch of mead does wonders with the flavor and speeding up the fermentation. I'm not sure what you wanted to know basically about the keeping of pollen. I didn't know if you were using it to eat as an allergy reducer. I didn't know if you were making pollen patties to feed your bees. I didn't know if you were trying to save the pollen to uh, hand pollinate your own plants at home or if you were trying to bulk sell it for people to do heirloom uh, pollination for their seeds. But uh, basically, if you keep it well refrigerated and sealed, you can keep it up to six months to a year, and then after that I would probably discard it and try something else, unless you're going to use it for brewing. Hey, this has been Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, about pollen saving. Hey, Jack, this is Shane from Grayson County, Texas. Got a quick question for you. Looking to kill some doves this Fall. I'm curious what you would plant and maybe the legal ramifications of what anything you want not in Texas. Kind of a lot of gray area there. But if you've got a 175 acres of pasture, I'd love to throw up seed and see if it comes up and maybe get it to kill a few more doves than normal. Appreciate your show. Thanks. Well, the, the two things that I've seen that doves seem to relish above almost everything else are uh, both annuals, but they could be overseeded into a pasture, especially, let's say, right at the time you might do a cutting or something like that, or right after uh, or even right before a grazing session, and those would be sorghum and black oil sunflower, and letting that black oil sunflower just kind of go to the ground on its own uh, or something to that effect, and make sure you time the planting so that, uh, it's nice and dry and dropping seed, and same with the sorghum. So planting your planting uh, to create these zones that have a lot of feed for the doves, that would probably be good. I'm not an advocate of conventional farming, but I will say that the the best dove hunting I've ever done in my life outside of the state of Texas, because dove hunting here is just nuts. There, there's more doves in this state at the time of year when we're shooting them then, then I, I don't even get to worry about it. If you find an open place where doves fly through, you can't shoot a limit here because you can't shoot. Um, they're, they're just everywhere. But Pennsylvania, not so much. And we used to hunt doves regularly there. And by, there was a one-month season, and by the last week, we didn't even hunt them anymore. 
because they were almost all gone by then because they'd gone south. Um, but the best hunting I've ever had for them uh, in a place where they were clearly attracted to what was there was a farm that we found. We saw a lot of doves around it in the summer. We talked to the farmer, and a week before dove season, we're just giddy because we came by, and he had harvested corn, and he had plowed the field, and he had just planted winter wheat, and that winter wheat was going to take maybe two weeks to germinate and start coming up. And he didn't want doves eating it all, but they were certainly coming in there. And they were attracted to both the fact that the winter wheat was there seeded and the bare dirt. With bare dirt, there's all types of seed and stuff turned up. And they like to land on bare dirt to feed. So those are some things I can tell you about doing that. And you got to do what you want to with that. I will tell you this. If you specifically plant anything, especially doves, because this is a federal migratory game bird, If you specifically plant anything for the purpose of attracting them and then hunt over it, it is considered baiting and it is illegal even if your state allows baiting for other things because it's federally regulated. Whether or not anybody's going to care is a totally different story. We have a dove lease we used to hunt out in, in, in Texas here out by De Leon, $50 a gun a day, nice inexpensive common man hunting. And we were out there one day, and we're looking around. There's corn and millet and stuff laying all over the field. And the one guy says to me, what did this guy plant here? And I said, I think he planted himself a dove lease. He didn't tell anything he had cut, and he had stubble in the field, and he just threw all this stuff down. And he had $50 a gun on a few hundred acres. He was probably making some pretty good money making sure that doves were there, and technically that would be illegal. But we were leasing the land. We didn't put it there. He said he seeded it. So if your question, knowing how to answer the question, is as important as anything else okay um but you know improving wildlife habitat is one thing planning it specifically to attract doves is another now as a dove hunter i can tell you this is a little more complex than this and it's more important to start understanding the flyways and encouraging the total habitat on your property than just planting something that they'll come there to eat doves are remarkably predictable creatures they get up in the morning And they stretch their wings, and especially at the time where they're migrating and what have you, or they're kind of hanging out, but they've raised their last clutch for the year. They don't have little babies to feed anymore. A lot of them that are out flying around are young birds of the year. They can have three to four, and even in some climates, five clutches a year. That's why they're so daggone many of them. Um, when they're in that stage, and at that time of year, usually September's dove season in most places, what a dove does is it gets up in the morning, And it, it, it's, it's, you know, kind of stretches its wings and it'll fly somewhere. Usually it'll go find water. That's like its first order of business. It'll fly, fly somewhere and find some water, maybe pick a little bit of grit, and then it's going to go eat. And it's going to eat in the morning. And then it's going to go find a nice place to chill out for most of the day. And then it's going to fly and it's probably going to fly to feed again. It's going to fly for water and it's going to fly to roost. And these are your main flights during the day. And if you have a stock tank on that property and you encourage it and make it easy and convenient for doves to use as a watering hole, they're going to fly to that watering hole. Okay. And if there's a good place with like some evergreens and stuff on your property somewhere or some live oaks if you're down south here, that's a good roosting area. They're going to fly to a roost. And if there's a good place to eat, even if it's not on your property, they're going to fly from these watering stations, grit stations, and trees to eat and back. What you don't want to do, stand over the stock tank and shoot the doves as they're coming into the stock tank. That says to the doves, this is a dangerous place. 
finding flyways and shooting them on the way there will preserve the fact that some of them still get there, some of them fly around you, some of them, and they go water, and they their activity brings in other doves, and you might change to a different flyway the next day or the next week. Same thing with their roosting locations. Don't hunt them over their roost. Figure out where they're roosting, where they're feeding, set up an intercept at an interim point far enough away from the roost that the danger is now associated with that point, not the roost. This is how you continuously hunt doves over a full season without ruining your honey holes. So that's like a little bit more involved answer there. Hopefully that helps you. Uh, let's go ahead and now take another one for an expert council member. This question is from a listener we'll call Dan. He says, what are your thoughts on raw dairy and nuts in the primal, primal, and, paleo, primal and paleo diet world? Details are, my family has been living a primal paleo lifestyle since last fall which has dramatic positive effect on our lives. Even though we, even though the hardcore paleo community doesn't embrace dairy, we continue to use raw milk from a local farm as well as pasteurized organic value-added items such as cheese, yogurt, sour cream, and butter. Recently, I was reading Dr. Lauren Cordain's article on milk, which claims that dairy causes a disproportionately high amount of insulin response uh, for the relatively low amount of lactose in milk and should be avoided for this reason, among many others. On the other hand, groups like Weston A. Price sing high praises of raw milk and recommend regular consumption for the vitamins, calcium, probiotics. I was wondering if you could weigh in with your perspective on if dairy should play a role in our diets or not. So what say you, Mr. Collins? Hi, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and a listener has a great question about dairy and nuts on the paleo and primal diet and lifestyle and how they fit in. And primarily to a question on Dr. Lauren Cordain, who is the author of The Paleo Diet and good friend. And he talks about how dairy is not included in paleo because the lactose creates a very high insulin spike. And he is right. That is true. But on the primal side, we're more lenient and we say, you know, raw organic dairy is fine. Preferably raw. Raw is a little harder to find, um, and you do not want to ingest raw dairy if you have an immune problem, immune deficiency. Just get that disclaimer right out there. But Or infants, young children. I have to get that out there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting topic because dairy upon itself is not bad. Um, many of us are lactose intolerant for a good reason. Mother Nature is very smart. And think about it, the reason we become lactose intolerant from right around age five to seven uh, is because obviously we wouldn't want to compete against the next offspring that is coming up. If we did not become lactose intolerant, we would all be competing for breast milk for the most part. Uh, so obviously this is Mother Nature saying, okay, you know, around five to seven, you no longer need breast milk. There should be another uh, newborn coming in. Uh, after you, so that newborn will take priority. It just makes sense. Um, with that, though, you know, a lot of people have problems with dairy, and they like to talk themselves out of it. And I've had many clients that have asthma, eczema, and even by going raw organic dairy, it, it's better, but they still have the same problems, a lot of sinus infections, seasonal allergies. And once they get off dairy, all of it kind of clears up, and they go, oh, my goodness. But it's hard for for a lot of people to give it up. Um, it's very easy to figure out. Empty stomach. 
uh, maybe, you know, a four or five hour fast, consume some dairy and see what the reaction is. If you become, you know, a lot of phlegm, your sinuses become, you know, clogged, your eyes maybe burn a little bit, maybe a slight headache, maybe some itching, you're having an intolerance. That means don't consume that. Uh, but for the people who do not have any issues, hey, my attitude is daily, small amounts. Uh, at the most, I prefer three to four times a week. And, you know, a couple slices of cheese, you know, maybe a little sour cream, some butter. And that doesn't mean put a whole stick of butter in your coffee or something stupid like that or fry your egg in a stick of butter. Those guys are idiots. Don't follow those people. They have no background in health. And most of them are absolutely in god-awful shape. Uh, little side note there. But as uh, – and he talks about the Weston A. Price, asks about Weston A. Price Foundation who promotes basically – gorging yourself on dairy products. And I'll just leave it at this. Jack has interviewed the president of WAPF. Go listen to it. It'll make things very clear. But if you go look at those people, they look god-awful. But they, it's not just dairy. They consume a lot of other things they shouldn't be consuming. But that you would never... There are some cultures that do rely upon dairy as a primary source, but that would be that would be specific to to regions of the world and ethnic regions, uh, ethnic uh, people. So that's a whole different can of worms right there. Um, For the average American, that does not apply. Um, When it comes to nuts, the potato chips of paleo, as I have always said, one to two uh, handfuls a day is fine. Don't gorge yourself on them. That's the biggest mistake people make. They are high calorie. They have a good amount of fat with carbohydrate. So you can definitely gain weight eating too many nuts. Um, he talks, he will ask a question about phytic acid, which is a chemical, a natural chemical within nuts that is a protectant. Um, but what it does is it actually blocks the, the micronutrients of humans and getting in, uh, such as magnesium, potassium, uh, calcium, copper, zinc, iron. It'll block the absorption of those. But you know what? There's a lot of things in nature that are anti-nutrient in, in, in natural form. They do that. The problem is, is when you overconsume something like that, that's when you're going to run into a problem. And our problem is most Americans are micronutrient deficient to begin with. So if you eat too many nuts and you block the absorption of just what little you're getting, well, you're getting basically nothing. So that, that kind of puts that into context. But with that, the two nuts that I prefer are almond and macadamia nuts. Uh, almond, if you sprout them and you can actually get them uh, sprouted and they have less phytic acid and also macadamia nuts are, are low in phytic acid. So that is the way I like to go. Try to avoid cashews. Most, uh, most people don't know this, but cashews are the most allergy or allergen high of all the nuts. And I know a lot of people that have problems with cashews and they just don't know it because usually it's in a nut mix and you, you know, you don't usually eat them by themselves. But I would highly recommend people, uh, be careful and you're probably saying, well, how about peanuts, Gary? Well, peanuts are not nuts. They're actually legumes. They're, uh, they're beans. So that's why they are not included in the paleo diet. Well, I hope that helps out and explains. I know the phytic acid is a complicated topic and I couldn't get too far into it. Um, but 
the way I explained it is the way I explained it in my books. It's very straightforward. Um, I think uh, some of these people overcomplicate it. So I hope that helps. I have just a little bit to add there because I have a different opinion about the whole paleo concept than I think most people do. Because I think most people are really addicted to being told what to do. And I don't disagree with anything Gary said, by the way. This is my, my take on the whole the paleo thing. And is it or isn't it paleo? So Lauren Cordain, Rob Wolf, and other people from this have come uh, this this concept of human beings should eat what we evolved as a species to eat. And again, I don't think it matters what your spiritual connotations about that are. We've been here a long time. What did we eat the majority of the time we were here? That just by biological adaptation, whether you believe in the term evolution or not, but biological adaptation, our body should be predisposed to, to, to make our fuel and do our processes from specific things and makeups and chemicals based on what we've consumed. That was the ideology behind it. And then those people realized that this sold very well to the low-carb market, Uh, the Dr. Atkins, uh, doctors, uh, Mary and Jan, uh, was, um, Mary and Dan, I think, Eads, the doctors Eads from Protein Power. That this, this was a logical sell into that. Why does that work? Well, it works due to, uh, not having insulin spikes, a good insulin glycogen response, uh, not putting lots of blood sugar into the body and things like that. And then said, so, well, it's also about maintaining proper sugar levels, which I think is true as well. And there's no doubt that if we eat primarily a paleo or primal style diet, we're going to significantly mitigate sugars of all kinds. And a lot of the sugars we'll end up eating are sugars that have lower insulin, insulin responses or some other times the, it's, it's not even just a less of a, a dramatic response to uh, the sugar that the body has. But the carbohydrate is in a specific form that doesn't trigger the response hardly at all, such as if we look at something like a Jerusalem artichoke, or we look at something like groundnut, not peanut, but groundnut, Apis Americana. These things have insulin, uh, not insulin, I'm sorry, carbohydrate in the form of something called inulin. And even though they have the energy of the carbohydrate, it just doesn't do to the blood what any other carbohydrate form really does. It actually helps to suppress that response. So eating some ground nut with something else with higher carbohydrate actually reduces. One carbohydrate reduces the insulin response of the other. And there's so many of these, these natural tubers, not white potatoes, etc., that are out there that if we eat these, we get this type of an, an inulin form of carbohydrate. So all of that is true. But then they start saying things like, well, you don't eat fruit because fruit's sugar. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Our paleo ancestors ate fruit every chance they got, right? But they ate it seasonally and locally. No one sat down and gorged five weeks in a row on the same fruit as a primary diet. And no one extracted the sugars and used it to sweeten other things in large volumes. So personally, when I look at paleo and primal, I look at it from the standpoint of, Is it reasonable to assume that for the majority of human existence, the human body ate and consumed these items? And if so, for me, it's paleo. That's my take. Jack's take, I'm not speaking for anybody here but me, and I'm not a biologist or a scientist or a doctor. This is my take on it. And I think this is why the approach overall works well for people. 
because it's a logical way that we would understand how the body responds. And that we're, if we're in tune with that, and if we're eating this vast, diverse uh, array of things, you're never going to eat that much of any one thing, and everything takes care of itself. Dairy comes into this weird ethos in between. Do I think our Paleolithic cave-living ancestors went out and milked a goat? Absolutely not. Do I think that they didn't give a damn about hunting season? Yes. Do I think that they killed the easiest animals to kill for the highest return? You bet your hairy butt I do. And I'll tell you what's easy to kill. A nursing large mammal female mother with her calf. That is easy to kill because she'll defend the calf. And you can stone it, club it, spear it, poke it, run it off a cliff, whatever. And do I think for an instant that when man took and started taking apart these animals in the early hunter-gatherer space, and they found a, 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 a sack full of milk, that they said, I don't want that, and they cut it and just let it... No! You've got to be kidding me! Uh, 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 the intelligence of the human being, understanding what milk was, understanding that their children were fed by this, would know the nutritive value of that milk. And I believe our first hunter-gatherer ancestors that started keeping herd animals probably did it more for milk than meat because it was easy to get the meat and more difficult to get the milk. So I think depending on your your ancestry will have a lot to do with how uh, lactose intolerant you will or will not be. And that's why I like Gary's approach. We, we, we go down to the raw bones. We start adding things back in a little at a time. This works for me. Great. This doesn't. Fine. That's the way I think we need to be living. To me, the paleo thing is a core, and we build from the core. And that's what's worked for me. That's what took 100 pounds almost off of my body. I put a picture on Facebook recently, man, of me standing in front of my grill and smoking a brisket and me in a suit from 2006 or seven. Now, it would have been 2007 is what that picture is. That's not that long ago, guys. I was in my mid-30s. I look like hell. I look like I'm ready to die. I look old. I put a picture up of me in my mid-40s. I look more like I did at 25 now than I did when I was 35. That's kind of ironic. I don't lift weights. I don't work out the way normally people think about it. I work on my property. I walk my ducks. I walk my dogs. I play with my dogs. I eat the best food I can eat. I don't eat perfect. This worked for me. I'm passionate about it because I believe it saved my life, and I've heard from enough of you people that tell me the same thing, that I want people to know about it, research it, and figure out if it works for you. I'm not saying it's the only way that works. I'm saying it's a way that I've seen work for more people easier than anything else. So look into it if you think you need to lose some weight. And I'll tell you what, if you get out of breath because you're bending over, if you get out of breath because you've walked from the back of the parking lot to the front of the parking lot, whether you think you do or not, whether people tell you you do or not, you probably need to lose weight. And many of you, you don't need to lose weight. You need to get in better shape. There's plenty of you out there that I think are skinnier than me, but you're probably not in better shape than I am at this point. I know people that never gain weight, but their health is crap. That could be you too. Anyway, let's take uh, another one for uh, an expert council member. Uh, this one is for Erica Strauss. Um, who is from NorthwestEdible.com, and I, I really have a great question, I think, for Erica today that I think she'll just hit a home run on, and it's something I alluded to earlier in my, my question for John from West Virginia. 
John asked me, you know, what is the, the, the thing that I can plant, do the least amount of work, and get the most amount of yield from? And I said it's butternut squash. A close second, if not as equal in total quantity of production, would probably be the cucumber. The cucumber, especially like where John's at in West Virginia, it's not as, as pest prone. Uh, it can do with pretty nutrient deficient soils. Um, there's plenty of day length there for them. It's, it's a great crop and you can produce from a small bed a lot of cucumbers. My grandmother used to make just gallons and gallons of pickles and relishes and stuff like that from uh, about a four foot by I'd say 20 foot is how long the beds were it was just phenomenal the amount but you know you can only eat so many pickles at least I can and my question then is for people that are growing cucumbers you always end up with a surplus my wife came up with a great salsa but what are some other uses that we can come up with for something that comes into such abundance as the cucumber now what say you Erica Hey, Jack, this is Erica from Northwest Edible calling in to answer your question about dealing with that summer cucumber glut. Let's break down some of your options. So you've got two major kinds of cucumbers, the slicers and the picklers. Slicers are your fresh eating cucumbers. They have tons of moisture and they have a moderately thick skin that helps keep that moisture in. They're bred to be very crisp in a salad or in a sandwich. And generally, you pick your slicers at about eight inches long. Some varieties like the English or the Hothouse can be picked even longer. Pickling cucumbers are a little bit different. They have a very thin skin so that brine can penetrate them easily. And typically, they're bumpy or have little prickly spines on the surface. Pickling cukes are usually denser with a lower moisture content, which actually makes them better for processing. And you usually want to get them when they're about three to four inches long. Some varieties can go a little bit longer, but most pickling cucumbers are at their best when they're quite petite and blocky. So let's go over a couple ideas for slicing cukes first. Um, for folks uh, like you, Jack, who are on a low-carb or a paleo-primal diet, I think cucumbers make the best vegetable-based alternative to a grain base chip. So you can pair just simple cucumber slices with your favorite dip. Or what I really like is to whip a soft cheese like cream cheese or goat cheese or blue cheese, whatever soft cheese you really like, and whip it until it's sort of soft and spoonable. And then you season that mix with um, some soft, fresh green herbs like dill or mint or parsley or basil and a little salt and pepper. And then you can put a little dollop of that cheese mixture on those cucumber slices and you've got a summer snack or appetizer that doesn't require that you turn on the oven really easy. Another easy favorite is tzatziki, which is a Greek-style cucumber yogurt sauce. It's very easy. Uses stuff you probably have at home. The key to a really great tzatziki is you want to drain your cucumber for a while to let that extra water flow out of the cucumber so it doesn't dilute your tzatziki and make it runny. And then you want to start with a yogurt that's either already thick, like a Greek-style, or you want to drain your yogurt, too, and get some of that extra whey out. So if you start with drained cucumber and a thick yogurt, mix those together, and then season everything with some finely minced garlic, lemon juice, olive oil to smooth it out. And then I like to add in just a ton of crumbled feta because I really like that 
briny flavor from the feta. And if you do that, just mix it all up. You can make it several hours ahead of time or even a couple days ahead of time. Leave it in the fridge, and that is a really versatile dip or sauce. You can use it uh, with cucumber slices like we talked about earlier. You can use it with pita bread. You can dollop it on uh, grilled lamb off the grill in the summer. I use it even as a salad dressing. Make a big salad of tomatoes, olives, onions, and then put this tzatziki right over it. Uh, So that's really, really versatile. One of the things I like to do in the summer when it just feels like there's better things to do than spend all day in the kitchen is make a big chopped salad that will hold in the fridge. So I'll always have uh, easy food ready to go. And one of my favorites when we get into that cucumber glut season is diced up cucumber, vine ripened tomatoes, canned uh, chickpeas. I pressure canned chickpeas, so it's a staple I have around. And some sweet onion, all tossed together with a real simple balsamic vinaigrette. And then if you have oregano, basil, other great herbs in your garden, you kind of toss those in. If you if you want to add cheese, you can. If you want to add diced up chicken because you have a leftover roast chicken, you can. It's really versatile, just a basic salad. Okay, so there's a few options for your slicing cucumbers, but what if you have a glut of pickling cukes? Well, my recommendation is early in the season before the cucumbers have started trying to eat your yard, uh, make a really easy refrigerator pickle called cornichon. This is a French pickle that uses tiny little baby cucumbers. You can use any small baby pickling cucumber. Just select ones that are smaller than your pinky finger. Cornichon are very strong in flavor by design. They're generally made with white wine vinegar, lots of fresh tarragon, shallot, and black pepper. And so you end up with this really herbal puckery flavor from your pickles. And that's great because these pickles are traditionally paired with very rich, fatty meats and pâtés, and the pickle cuts through that richness. So in our family, in the fall, what I do is uh, pick up a pig from a local farmer, and I process some of the meat from that hog into pâté and various sausages. So it's nice to have that summer jar of cornichon ready to go for my holiday plate of pâté. Now, once your pickling cukes start winning the garden war, it's relish time. Nothing uses up more cucumbers in a hurry than pickle relish. So you can go for dill or sweet relish, depending on what you like and what your family likes, and just process through jars of pickle relish for your hot dogs and your burgers. One tip on relish, do not try to hand chop all of the vegetables for your relish. You will get carpal tunnel and you'll learn to hate relish. Instead, just pulse each vegetable ingredient for the relish individually in a food processor and get the right texture. Don't combine your vegetables. So don't pulse your peppers and your onions and your cucumbers all together. Do cucumbers until they're the right texture and then move them to a bowl and then do peppers until they're the right texture, move them to the bowl, onions, move them to the bowl. And that way you can time the amount of pulsing you're doing in your food processor so that every ingredient gets uh, minced up to just the right shape and texture. So there's a few ideas to help you deal with that summer cucumber overwhelm. I hope this helps. Jack, thanks so much for your show and for letting me weigh in here. Guys, keep on sending in your food preservation, homekeeping, and urban homesteading questions. Again, I'm Erica. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll talk to you guys soon. Hey, Jack. Kevin from Texas. I got a area in the back that receives sun probably about 10 hours out of the day. Uh, has a good solar exposure, but it's a low area. Um, looking at planting something in there, uh, obviously I've avoided it with all the other trees that I planted back there. But 
looking to do something, I don't know, maybe Mayhall or something like that. Um, we live in Zone 8, uh, not that far from the coast. So uh, just curious, what do you think that uh, – what are some good options for some trees for the orchard back there? Thanks. Well, you didn't say it, but I'm assuming because you kept mentioning it was a low-lying area that you're concerned about moisture. And it's definitely true that you can get problems with trees like pears and apples and things. You know, trees, again, like, like apples and pears and conventional fruit trees, don't like to be too wet. In fact, they actually do well with less water than most people think they really need. And when you get really wet, soppy areas, they get collar rot, root rot, and things like that. Uh, peaches are a little less susceptible, but the same type of thing. Plums, a little less susceptible, but the same type of thing. And the problem with plums and apricots and things like that, when they get too much water, not only might you have problems with the plants, but the quality of the fruit goes down. Everybody likes a juicy peach. You bite into it, it runs down your arm or whatever. But if it gets too wet, it loses flavor. It doesn't have character. So uh, those are some issues there as well. Mayhaw is a great tree to plant where you're at. They do like really wet soils, not you know sopping wet, but they will deal with it better than most and produce a good yield for you. Another thing to look at is persimmon. Those are probably your two best productive trees for the area that can handle the moisture if it is excessive. The next thing to look at would be other other useful plants that you might put here that aren't necessarily a fruit or a nut tree. Willow has a lot of uses, right? Willow can be used to make rooting uh, compounds. So willow buds mixed with water is all you need to stimulate root activity in a lot of plants for making rooted cuttings. Uh, it also makes great charcoal. It's uh, it's a medicinal. So willow would do there. Uh, Tupelo would do well there. Cypress would do there. There's a number of oaks that would do just fine in, in wet soils. Basically, if you walk through a forest and find wet, swampy areas and look at the trees that are growing there, those trees or analogs of them would do well in that area for you. And a wetland area that's treed doesn't necessarily all have to be highly productive. But if you only have so much land, I can understand why you want to squeeze as much productive trees in as possible. Another thing to look at, is it really even a problem? Trees are hydraulic pumps. The more trees you put in an area, the less standing water you're going to have because they take the water up, especially as the trees get larger. Sometimes just putting in a lot of support trees, let's say a ring of black locusts around a couple of productive trees, will be enough that those trees, those support species, will not only support with nitrogen and with root infiltration, but taking up enough water until that tree gets large enough to deal with it itself. The other thing is, if you mound things up, right now my entire property is covered with mud and muck and grossness and water. I have parts of it that literally stink from anaerobics due to the standing water at this point. And it's just, it's just not pleasant anywhere. There are two places where it's actually pretty good, though. One is the raised mount Hugel system on Contour, which is infiltrating water, by the way. Um, it's like a Zone 2 orchard. Most of the stuff there is doing great. And then over where my swales are that are harvesting all this water, you'd think that would be the muckiest, wettest place. It's not. The mounds are, 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 are properly infiltrated with water. There is wetness in between the swales. There is some standing water here and there. But the rest of the property is far worse. The people that say, well, swales are good for places where it doesn't rain much, don't understand swales. They just don't. I mean, in a swamp is a totally different thing. Right? 
But putting swale berms in in places where there's lots of rain, instead of having all the rain concentrate in a few areas, you spread it out, you slow it down, you infiltrate it, and your ground has an easier time harvesting it. You're also putting in lots of plantings, you're putting in lots of mulches, you're putting in lots of cover crops, and all of these things help mitigate the effects of the rain. So yeah, the swale's sitting there full of water, but the downgrade side of it and the upgrade side of it, except where it's overflowed, are dry and less muddy compared, not so much dry, but they're drier and less muddier than the field that I haven't had done any earthworks on yet. So just simply mounding or doing hoogles back there or something like that. If you do hoogles for trees, you want to run them like one year in annuals and give that thing time to settle before you put tree systems into them like I did here. You could then plant probably anything that you want. Trees don't get so upset that some of their roots are in water. They get upset that all of their roots are in water. If you give that tree a couple feet to spread out into, and it just so happens at certain times of the year that the deeper roots are sitting in really wet soil, a lot of trees that otherwise will have problems won't. So those are my thoughts on that. Let's take another question for an expert panel member. And with that, I'll kick over to my standard question for uh, Paul Wheaton. Paul is, of course, developing a, a multi, uh, actually I'd say a hundred plus acre property in the wilds of Montana. He's got all kinds of community activities going on up there. They're doing interesting things every week. Uh, in the uh, in the dukedom of Wheatonville, he calls himself the Duke of Permaculture because he got Jeff Lawton and tricked him into saying it once. And uh, it is really an awesome project that Paul's undertaking, and it's probably the only one like it that's out there. So every week I'd like Paul to check in with us and let us know what's going on in the wilds of Montana, Mr. Paul. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with an update of what's been going on at Wheaton Labs. Uh, last week, I told you that I was going out to test to see if we have hot water uh, with the shower shack, which is heated by a compost pile, and we don't. So we've been trying to get that compost pile restarted. You know, there's there's the whole idea of, like, can we do it quickly or do we have to overhaul the whole pile? So far, we've done some quick things. We've got it to be warm but not hot. So... I think we're probably going to have to open up the whole pile and build it over again. Um, and this is a Jean Payne style, uh, hot water method. Um, we've built a new skittable shed. It's not quite done yet. Um, and the focus has been on a lot more roundwood. So, uh, rather than using in our previous skittable sheds, we've used a lot of dimensional lumber. We, we do have a sawmill, but of course, you know, it takes a little extra time to run the sawmill, but we've got lots and lots, just oodles of pole wood all over the place. Most other people uh, take all that pole wood and, and cut it all down and burn it in the wintertime, but we're trying to use it for all kinds of things. Uh, uh, planting seeds. Oh boy, we've been just laying out the seeds. Right, right now is the time to lay those seeds out uh, here in Montana. Uh, it, it used to be that the average last frost date was a little later in the year, but we've been experiencing it's a little earlier in the year. Uh, one of the things we're going to be working on uh, probably this upcoming week is planting a living fence, uh, and we'll just and we'll just plant that from seed. I know most people like to get the little transplants and stuff, but we're going to be doing it from seed. Uh, we replaced a hydraulic ram in a little dump trailer that we have, uh, so uh, you know there's always some maintenance and stuff going on, and and I can tell you all about how the water got into the system and rusted the hell out of it, but. The key is is that we got the new RAM in, and and uh, I think we're about done with that project. Uh, we're looking at renting a bulldozer uh, for a week, probably uh, in a, a week or two, just before the PDC that we'll be doing. 
Oh, we need to build some new roads, including building some new roads through solid rock. And I, I built some roads uh, last year through solid rock uh, using the excavator, but I think it'll be much faster with the bulldozer. Uh, we also need to uh, mend some current roads and kind of give some upgrades to some of the existing roads. They don't have a crown on them. We need to put a crown on those roads uh, and make sure that there's proper uh, uh, ditches on the sides. Um, so... People, oh, here's a note I have. People, the people that are here the week before the PDC get a chance to drive the bulldozer, uh, and the people that are here during our PDC will get to drive the excavator and the tractor. Uh, and so then the PDC starts on June 21st, so it's coming up pretty soon, and and uh, all kinds of preparations are underway. Uh, the pooper at base camp uh, has been going through some upgrades. Um, we've been doing improvements, uh, since last year where we wanted to improve it from better than a porta potty, which when it was first built, it was better than a porta potty. And now we're trying to transition it to, um, better than using the bathroom in the house. And so, uh, I think last year we kind of got to that point, but we've been making more and more improvements. Uh, the, the pooper now has more privacy. Um, and we've got an improved door that, that latches with a magnet. It used to be that there'd be a kind of a, a latch on the outside and a latch on the inside, which is kind of silly because if you, somebody wanted to, they can lock somebody in, which is less than optimal. It didn't never happen or anything, but it could happen. We don't want that. But now it locks from the inside only with a sliding barricade. And when it slid into the locked position, then on the outside, it reads occupied. And when it slid to the open position, then on the outside, it reads open. Um, Evan is uh, our only ant that's here right now, although we now have two ants. There's another ant that's coming. This is part of our ant village. We have a maximum capacity of 12. And uh, he's currently working on a debris hut, so a short-term shelter to, to get through the next month or so while he works on his wafati. Um, uh, prepping for the PDC, we have six seats left at $400 per seat. Uh, this this is a free PDC that was free for the people that uh, well variety of different situations, but the free the people to get signed up for the free period that's over. So now it's four hundred dollars per seat um, through the end of May, and then it's going to go up to six hundred dollars per seat. Um, we've got several guest instructors coming: Thomas Elpel, uh, author of Botany in a Day. Um, uh, he'll be making an appearance. Not sure how much instruction he'll be doing, how much time he'll have here, but. Uh, he'll be here. Helen Atow, uh, she's the gal who taught me my Master Gardener program in uh, uh, 1996, and she's been in a lot of my podcasts. People who've listened to all of my podcasts have said that uh, they've listened to all the ones with Helen twice. Uh, Jacqueline Freeman, she's the gal that does the uh, um, Reverence for Bees series that I have up on YouTube. Um, and, uh, uh, she would be my B person. I'm, I'm really excited to have her here. We got four podcasts with her, which I think we should probably convert into a book. Some of the best podcasts I've ever made. And we got Josh Osamane coming. He is, uh, a sculptor, an artist, uh, who also teaches a lot of PDCs over in California. Um, but, you know, and he'll be coming for about four days, I believe. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what he has to bring. Um, We've got a new boneyard set up at the laboratory, and we're moving a lot of our m- miscellaneous stuff there. I think it's important for every farm to have a boneyard. A uh, great way to be able to, to reuse materials um, and you know, kind of get it out of sight a little bit. Both of our wafatis have now had a major cleanup. 
and uh, um, I think that the TP is next, uh, and we're hoping that the TP can can get into some space uh, to be a glamping kind of uh, destination for some people that that uh, like that kind of thing. And of course, to experience a rocket mass heater in the middle of winter um, with inside of a teepee, you really get a good feel for like, wow, the fire's been out for eight hours, but it's still very warm in here, and there's no insulation, and you know, it's uh, there's snow on the ground outside. Um, in fact, we had a guy here, Michael Beyer, who is a props guy with the Penn and Teller show. Uh, so, so he has great skill with getting things to fit into very tight spaces. And, um, and he made a major upgrade to the rocket mass heater in the teepee. Um, I think, I think we have more than doubled the rocketiness of that rocket mass heater. Uh, uh, while at the same time, um, making it a little bit more aesthetically pleasing inside. It's, uh, it's, it's quite the upgrade. It's really nice. Um, we, ha- our, we have an excavator, a 14 ton excavator, and, uh, the tracks came off. And the guy that was driving it felt so bad, but actually it's, it's my fault. We should have told him about how to check the, the tensioner for the tracks on the excavator, and we're going to make a checklist and get that in there. But we did get the tracks back on, and of course it, it does take some, some pretty serious work to get that done. Um, we released a new podcast about Alone in the Wilderness, and so this is where Evan the Ant and I, uh, uh, watched the movie. It was about my 12th time watching it. And by the way, here at Wheaton Laboratories, prenicky is a verb. And so we, we talk about, well, you could prenicky that. <laughs> and, and so then that's going to mean to, to, to build it without any power tools whatsoever. And, uh, we have only one active hive up here, beehive, uh, and it did swarm, a powerful indicator that the health of the hive is excellent. So we had a swarm, uh, we got it on video. It was really kind of cool. And then we set out a, uh, a hive, an empty hive, to try and catch the swarm. Um, and so right now the, the, the two are kind of looking at each other. We'll see how that, how that goes. That's it. That's the news from Wheaton Laboratories. Thanks, Jack. Hi, Jack. I was hoping you could give a recommendation as to what to use for a living mulch for newly formed swale berms in southern Ohio, Zone 6A. I'm definitely thinking a white clover for various reasons as well as daikon radish to let some organic material rot and the lovely clay soil I'm working with. But wanted to see what else you were thinking, if it might jive with other things bouncing around my head. Uh, two specific things that I'm trying to accomplish, and they're of lesser importance. The first is that I'm hoping to inhibit the growth of thistle. Anytime I've implemented systems around here, that stuff just pops up like crazy. And I know it's telling me my soil is compacted and it's a good dynamic accumulator, but, oh, man, I just hate the stuff. Uh, second, I'm hoping for stuff that doesn't grow to be too tall and can just be let go and be perennial and not have much maintenance because one of my least favorite chores here in the old homestead is running the weed eater. So appreciate your thoughts on a living mulch mix and uh, maybe how to take care of it. I assume just throw some straw on after I broadcast the seed and maybe even where to acquire it. Thanks so much for your time. Well, let's take a little bit of a different look at this from just the beginning of it, just to like give you the idea of how much freedom of choice you have with what you're doing here. I look at earthworks like creating a canvas, and then you and I as painters might paint it completely differently or use many of the same colors or many of the same brush strokes or not. 
but there's a certain philosophy behind painting or sculpting, and this is like painting a sculpture that you're going to have to follow. So if we're painting a, a blank canvas, then, well, you can pretty much paint anything you want to, but if you're painting a sculpture, there's something there that has to be worked with based on what, what we're dealing with, right? It's not completely blank. So with that in mind, to me, the very first thing we want is something to grow. We've just pissed off Mother Earth, man. We have put a scar in her face. It's going to regrow into something beautiful, but she doesn't know that yet, and she's not very trusting of us because we're constantly doing this crap and growing corn. So Mother Nature says, I will bring back my minions and sends everything, including the thistle. Right? Unless something else starts growing really, really fast, she's going to grow whatever the hell she can. So let's get something to grow. Some of the some things that we can get to grow very, very quickly are not what's going to be there next year, except some will recede, but they are annuals. And like the fastest thing we can usually get to grow is buckwheat, but it only has about a six-week life cycle. Cowpea and buckwheat are incredibly regenerative for these landscapes. They also do self-reseed, and they'll stick around here and there in clumps and parts for a long time until they get completely shaded out. So those are always my go-to. When I piss off Mama Earth, when I when I put a scar on her face, when she's all upset with me, no matter what else I do, those are my base colors in on, on the painting of the sculpture, buckwheat and cowpea. White clover, definitely. I think that it has it's a long-term nitrogen fixer. It's an aggressive ground clover, but it, it's slow to establish. So if we get it on the ground now, and when we cover it over with buckwheat and cowpea, It'll be protected. Little bits of it will grow, little bits of it won't grow, and it'll boom next year. So that would be one way to take the succession forward. Thistle is an aggressive plant. It's a survivor. It's either some varieties are perennial and some are biannual. It puts down, if you Google thistle root structure and you look at some of the cross sections done with thistle root, you will understand why it's so hard to get rid of. What I can tell you is it was everywhere here, and between ducks and geese, there's none. It's like duck candy. They And the geese are the same way. They will run to it, the prickly lettuce, the Russian thistle, it doesn't matter. Everything in that family, it, it's just like, it's like crack cocaine to an addict. They just eat it, and they eat it, and they eat it, and eventually it's like it can't make any energy anymore, so the roots start rotting in the ground, they become an asset. So if there's any way you can graze this land with, with poultry, it might help. The problem, of course, is what? During this establishment phase, they're going to destroy all this young, beautiful green stuff you're trying to grow, uh, in addition to the thistle, and then they're going to leave, and then the thistle's going to come back and you got a problem. So that's more of a second-year type controlled grazing situation that you could try. The other thing is Mother Nature wants to grow stuff unless you grow it faster and stronger and more. So what are some things that will cover the ground, won't get too high, and almost impossible to get rid of once we put them in there? So you really got to make sure you want to put this paint on your palette and into your ground. But how about peppermint? We establish peppermint, we can take cuttings, stick it in moist soil, boom, we got more peppermint, take cuttings, stick it in moist soil, boom, we got more peppermint, boom, 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 and we can just make it and make it and make it. Thing is, if you are going to put poultry in there, they're not going to eat it. So eventually it'll take over almost all the empty space. But the things you don't want to grow can't grow. It's a thick, matted uh, plant. 
It has beautiful flowers. It smells great. It attracts beneficial insects. Once it forms like a carpet, it's almost impossible for anything else to grow where it's established. But if you cut a hole in the ground and stick something in there, it'll grow underneath it. And as long as it's something tall that gets up above it, it doesn't really suppress anything. It can be one of the perfect ground covers as long as you understand what you're doing and what's going to happen when you do it. The other thing is what outcompetes thistles that's beneficial. How about blackberries? You know, if we triple crown and Chester are probably two of the best old school variety blackberries you can get your hands on. Prime Mark, Prime Jim, Prime Jan, these Primacane blackberries. These are brambles. They form dense, thick crowns. Once they're established, you can have thistle growing next to it, but thistle's not going to push it out. Think, start thinking about your shrub layer. What can we put in the shrub layer below the trees that outcompetes the thistle? Autumn olive, blackberry, sea berry. These are thorny, but thistle can grow next to a sea berry, but it's not going to outcompete it. And then we just go through and we chop our thistle. And that thistle is full of nutrients and minerals and dynamic accumulation. And eventually, we have some patches where the clover takes over, where the mint takes over, where the shrubs are taking over. Because the one thing you don't see thistle ever do is grow in the middle of a forest. Don't worry about it if you're putting in a canopy-based system. By the time your canopy fills out, it won't be a problem anymore. It won't be able to survive in there. Or what little does will be a lot easier to control. So you have to think for yourself, how do you want this to progress forward? Don't put mint in there because Jack says mint makes a good ground cover unless you like mint and you want lots of it and you're willing to accept what it's going to do. It's going to crawl all over the place and it's going to grow in the shady spots more than mint does okay in the sun, but it likes partial shade, not full shade, not full sun part. It just we're in, in moist areas. That's where it really is going to dominate where your clover is going to be more dominant in full sun. And you can, you can have these things play together. Just, you can't get upset when one of them does really well in a certain area. And again, clover and mint, they form these thick, dense mats, suppressive ground cover. But their root systems aren't actually that deep. Which means that if we put a deeper rooted plant right in with them that gets taller than them, they don't really harm each other. They're, they're, they're much more happy to play together nicely. And if we did that with mint, especially a certain variety of mint, well, you just might be able to find something to do with it commercially that's commercially viable, like your own brand of mint tea that you sell locally. Dorothy and I are going to put in a whole mint garden. We have an area that's probably 80% of the day shaded, gets the last little bit of sun in the day, gets some reflective light all day long. It's kind of dark and, and, and wet and not really the greatest place in the world for things. And you know what? Mint will do beautifully there. We're going to put a whole bunch of different varieties of mint into this area. And that's going to be a whole product set for Nine Mile Farm. These different varieties of mints blended into custom teas mixed with other things like blackberry leaf and morinda, which is a mint family but not mint. And just start looking at all the different herbaceous perennials that you can come up with. Come up with a 100 herbaceous perennials and get cuttings and seed and plant and put it all in there. And all of a sudden... It's not so much worried about ground cover because the, the herbaceous layer is filling in so much that the ground cover is only finding clumps that are necessary for it to take place. 
Those are my thoughts. Uh, with that, let's take another one for an expert panel member. This one for John Pugliano. I've gotten an email from a whole bunch of you guys, various forms and reprintings of the same basic article. Uh, but there's an article that basically says, Kiss Your Retirement Funds Goodbye. And it's a little different than we've seen on this particular issue before. And it involves a Supreme Court ruling that doesn't directly seem to initially say, we're taking over your retirement. What the Supreme Court's actually said is that employers are responsible to make sure that the mutual funds in their employees' 401ks are not too expensive and that they perform well, whatever that means. And there's a, a lot of information in this article. I'm going to leave it to John to explain it and his, his response to it, but I've heard from at least several dozen of you guys very concerned about this article. There will be a link to the article in today's show notes so you can learn more about it. But John Pugliano is our financial genius. What say you about this Supreme Court ruling and its effect on employee pension programs, specifically 401ks? Hello, TSP listeners. In reference to the recent article written by Martin Armstrong entitled Kiss Your Pension Plan Goodbye, many of you have probably seen this article. I know it's been widely circulated. I saw the link to it over at the Drudge Report. I know that it's also been publicized on InfoWars and Prison Planet. Mr. Armstrong's basic premise in the article is that the Supreme Court has once again overreached their constitutional boundaries and that this recent decision, Tibble versus Edison, opens up the door for the government to seize your pension. He specifically states in the article, and I quote, It sets the stage to justify government seizure of private pension funds, unquote. Well, in my opinion, no, it doesn't. The Tibble versus Edison decision doesn't have anything to do with seizure of pensions. What the decision does try and do is go back and mandate employer fiduciary responsibilities because it was the Congress to begin with that set up the whole program that authorized employers to be responsible for pension plans instead of for individual employees to be responsible for their own pension programs. All these programs, they're all set up telling you that the government's going to protect you, that they're going to help implement more consumer rights, And then when these programs don't deliver, the government and the Supreme Court and other agencies have to step in to revitalize and to update the programs, but they never work. But in any case, none of these things have to do with the government putting plans in place to seize your retirement money or your pension funds. And I won't comment as to why people might want to make you believe that, but this recent Supreme Court decision has absolutely nothing to do with opening up the door and allowing the government to get in and seize your retirement money. And it doesn't matter if it did. See, here's the bottom line. When or if the government decides to come in and impose extra taxes or fines or penalties or change the rules or just seize your money outright, they won't care if they have prior Supreme Court precedents or if it violates existing laws, or any of that. They will simply change the laws so that they can do what they see fit, and if they want to seize your money, they'll just take it. Just look throughout history. Prior to 1913, we had no income tax in this country, but when the powers that be decided that they wanted to impose an income tax on the American people, they got together and they simply went in and changed the Constitution. So when they want to do something, they find a way to do it. They don't have to have all these little incremental steps leading up to it. Roosevelt made gold illegal in the 1930s. He went in, he seized people's gold. He didn't care if there was legal precedence for it or whether it was backed up by the Supreme Court or not. He simply did it. They changed the rules as they went. I don't live in a panacea world. I'm not saying that there isn't a conspiracy or that people aren't trying to take away your freedoms or take your money. I'm just saying that all these little events that the fear mongers try and tie together and weave them into one big conspiracy 
In my opinion, that's just not what's happening. I think it's just fear-mongering. All the laws and the regulations and the Supreme Court decisions and the encroachments on our freedom, it isn't that it's one big conspiracy. It's just that's how a tyrannical government that's too large operates. They're so involved in every activity of our life that they're constantly passing new rules and new regulations and laws to try and keep up with the mistakes that their prior rules and regulations and, and laws caused. This Tibble versus Edison case is just an example of that. Years ago, decades ago, the government mandated that tax-advantaged programs like 401ks would be administered by employers. They took the right for individual people to be responsible for their own retirement savings. And the government took that responsibility away from the citizens and gave it to the employers. And then the government has to keep going in and imposing new rules and regulations and tweaking the systems because the pension plan 401k programs or uh, things like health care, they'll never be as efficient and run as smoothly and as effectively if the private individual was doing it for themselves. As far as the future of pension plans and 401ks, I'm going to tell you in a nutshell what I believe. And Jack and I could do a whole episode on this. But it's my opinion that eventually pension plans will be taken over by the government. They won't be seizing the money to pay down the national debt. What the government will do, they'll come in with taxpayer money and they'll shore up these corrupt, underfunded public and private pension funds. And rather than reducing the debt, it will increase the debt because all these pension plans will become the burden of the American taxpayer. Now, as far as individual programs like 401ks and Roth IRAs, I don't think the government will seize them. That would be too hard to do politically. But here's what they will do. They'll keep drumming up this class warfare. They'll point to people like Warren Buffett and say it's not fair that these billionaires should be receiving benefits like Social Security and Medicare. And so they'll start means testing those programs. And although they'll let you keep your IRA money, what they'll do is they'll impose taxes that take away all your Social Security and your Medicare benefits. And although initially those will be imposed at the highest income levels, it won't take long for them to trickle down until the vast majority of the middle class has all their Medicare and Social Security taxed away from them. Well, again, this is just my opinion. Read the article. Draw your own conclusions. If you'd like to hear more of my opinions on the economy and building wealth, check out my podcast. It's available in all the normal places as well as at the website, wealthsteading.com. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Well, I, I have to say that I completely and totally agree with uh, John Pugliano's analysis on this. I, I really do. I think it's absolutely spot on. And I think that it is the pattern that's been set by these conspiratorial websites like InfoWars and like Prison Planet. And whenever I say that, uh, in Seeking Alpha and all this, people always say, but look, they brought us this and they brought us that. And this was true and that was true and this was true and that was true. And we wouldn't even know about that if it wasn't for Alex Jones. And maybe, but it, it's absolutely the case that these sources of information bring us a lot of valuable information. And bringing up this court case is an example of it's important to know this and I do think the Supreme Court has once again exceeded its boundaries and and made employers responsible for something that there is no constitutional basis for making an employer responsible for but that doesn't mean that they're going to seize your pension plan and the reason I sent this one to John is I knew he'd have a totally different way of explaining it from a completely financial analytical side, but yet bring the politics back in where it's necessary. This is the same pattern with Operation Jade Helm. They're incrementally imposing martial law. 
It's not that people like John Pugliano or Jack Spearco trust our government. We inherently distrust our government. We just know that the force of the state doesn't generally do things incrementally. When they're radical, they do them in a state of emergency, and they do them in one fell swoop all at once. They don't get ready to do this and get ready to do that. And think about how long people like this have been telling you they're getting ready to lock you in a FEMA camp. They're getting ready to do this. They're getting ready to do that. 20 years, 30 years, and they're still getting ready? How many different presidents? How many different administrations and they're still getting ready? They're not getting ready. They're always ready to capitalize on whatever gives them more power. And they will always follow that example because that's what states do. But if you're going to sit around living in fear all the time that these different things are going to happen to you, you're going to miss opportunities. It's like people that say, I refuse to own land because I never will really own it because I'm only renting it because I pay property taxes on it. Well, that's fine. You can lease land for me. You can pay my property taxes for me inside of your lease, and I'll get the appreciation of the land in the overall increase in the wealth of my portfolio. And by the way, while it's appreciating, I'll depreciate it, take an expense on it. But that's fine. You think you're getting over on the system. You haven't gotten over on the system. The way you get over on this system is the same way the people that write these regulations get over on the system. You understand them and you use them as best you can to your advantage. I'm not a huge fan of 401k plans because I think they're too limited, but for some people in certain situations, along with maximum contributions that are possible and employee match, employer matches, and getting young people to at least start saving some money for their future, I think they have a lot of value. I think you figure out how these things fit for you. What everybody wants is a binary code, an on or an off. 401ks are good, 401ks are bad. Well, that would be like saying guns are good and guns are bad. Guns aren't good or bad. Guns can be used for good things and bad things. 401ks aren't good or bad. They can be used for good things or bad things. The government might take my 401k. That's why you're not going to have one. The government might take your car. The government might take your gun. The government might take your house. The government might take your business. If we're going to be cowards, and that's what we are, we're being cowards. Well, I'm not going to have it because somebody might take it from me. Fine, give me yours. I'll keep it. And I'll defend it when they try to take it away. You can be a coward, I'll be a warrior. Stand or kneel. I am absolutely fed up with the people that are supposed to be fighting for liberty in this country acting like cowards. I won't do this because somebody might take it from me. Then get on your knees and quit. Get on your knees and quit. If anything in your life you are not doing because somebody might take it from you, if you want to see a coward, at least in that regard to your life, walk your ass to the nearest mirror and look into it, and the person staring back at you is at least being a coward in that regard. And you're probably not even being a coward. You probably don't want to do it, and you're letting cowardice be an excuse for inaction. That is not the way to control your own life. If that's how you're going to be now, what are you going to do when they get really oppressive? Or what are you going to do when they fail and you're required to do for yourself? You do what you can with what you have while you have it. You safeguard what you can with what you have while you have it. A 401k could be a very valuable investment tool. And there's a lot of people right now that are living good retirements, using them as a portion of their retirement. What if they had never done it because somebody might have? That's my thoughts and my additional thoughts on this. Next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on the Expert Council. 
This question comes from James. James says he's interested in buying some cordless power tools. He's not a professional. They'll see light use maybe once every other week or something like that. Since they're all battery-based, he wants to know, what do I consider with my purchase? What do I need to do to maintain these batteries so they have a long life? And he's seen some cordless batteries that degrade only to be useful for a few minutes. And that's a summary of his ramble. So what should we be looking for in value and quality when buying cordless power tools today, Mr. Stephen Harris? Hi, this is Steve Harris with the TSP Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. There are lithium batteries and there are not lithium batteries. All of the not lithium batteries are old-fashioned NICAD batteries. Yeah, NICADs. Why are they still NICADs, even these are out of fashion for everything else? It's because NICADs love to be fully discharged down to nothing. These are the batteries and the only batteries that get a memory effect, where if you charge it all the way up, use it for a little bit, charge it again, use it a little bit, charge it again, use it a little bit, it will begin to think that that bottom part where you left off is its zero point, and that's why nickel-cadmium batteries will die prematurely. So what you do to prevent this is you you put your battery in your drill, and you use it, use it, use it, use it, and use it until it's completely dead. Then you take that NICOD battery out, and you put it on the charger, take the one that was in the charger, and you put it back in your drill, and you keep on going. So it's best to have two NICAD batteries if you're going with these more affordable, older-type batteries. Uh, these are the most affordable, and I got some that are eight years old, and they're still working. Lithium batteries do not have a memory effect. They will never get one. I forget why. They have the most energy per unit of volume. They're also the most expensive batteries, though the lithium-ion batteries are a lot cheaper these days than they used to be, especially since Home Depot is now making lithium battery its dominant battery that it's selling with its Ryobi drills and saws and power tools and everything else. It is a very long discussion how to keep lithium-ion batteries alive for a long period of time. It's a long discussion well beyond what we're talking here, but you'll find this funny, and it's only true for lithium-ion batteries. They actually degrade the most. They lose most of their long-term life when they're fully charged. Even with this being true, I still keep all of my lithium-ion batteries, my cell phone, my uh, lithium-ion flashlights, my lithium-ion USB battery packs. I keep them fully charged all the time because what the heck good is a battery pack to you that's not fully charged? It's worth nothing. So if you want to slow down the degradation of the lithium-ion battery pack, like for your drill, and it's like you weren't going to use the battery for a month or so or something, you would actually put it into the refrigerator. Not the freezer, the refrigerator. And lithium, listen, lithium ions are the only battery you would ever put into a refrigerator. Never, ever put alkaline batteries into the refrigerator or freezer. I don't care what you read on the Internet. Don't do it. Room temperature only for alkalines. So what's the best value for you to get in a cordless drill and a cordless saw, like from Home Depot or Lowe's, like the Ryobi or the Milwaukee? Your best value might be the old-fashioned nickel-cadmium batteries if you're just going to have light use with it. You want to have two of them, one to use in the drill until it's dead, and one on the charger ready to go so when the one is dead can be replaced with a good one. Um, but 
I mean, these are becoming out of favor and they're pushing you more and more to the lithium ion batteries because they have so much mo- so much more power to them. So it's six one half dozen the other. You'll have to make a de- determination and see if they're even available to you off the shelf. So it's up to you whether you're going to use an old-fashioned nickel cadmium battery or a lithium ion battery. If you want to know more about lithium-ion batteries and how you can use them in your preps and flashlights, which they are awesome in, and as uh, backup battery packs for your USB charging, go to prep1234.com and read all of my comments there about all the items I have listed. It's a heck of an education reading what I wrote. All my stuff that I've done with Jack is at steven1234.com. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you next week. The only word I didn't hear in there that I was waiting to hear is DeWalt. Um, I try not to be like the, what I would call the James Yeager of power tools. For those not uh, familiar with James Yeager and tactical response, uh, if you ask him what gun you should be carrying, he will say, well, you can carry anything you want, but if you don't carry a Glock, you're wrong. And I don't like to be that way with anything. And I love James, but I, I disagree with that. I think that that is one very uh, good choice uh, among many very good choices. And it's one of the best choices that are out there. But it's not the only choice, and it's not the best choice for everybody. And that's how I try to be with, with, with DeWalt. I want to say, if you don't buy DeWalt, you're wrong. But it's not true. It's it's not the best choice for everybody. They are more expensive than a lot of other really good tools that get the job done just fine. And in the end, the batteries for a DeWalt aren't necessarily any bad uh, any better than any battery of equivalency from any other tool. But if you if you survey the vast majority of uh, contractors who do work with power tools on a daily basis that work in the toughest, roughest, harshest environments. Uh, people that are that are people like cable splicers, and you think of cable and splicing in a little bit. I'm talking about hardline CATV cables that are working on power poles and stuff. They have a drill hanging from their belt. It's going to fall off sooner or later, hit the ground. They're going to pick it up, slap the battery back, and get back up on the pole. And, and they're going to be in mud and holes, splicing cables and grounds. Like that's the kind of industry that I come from in, in my past. Uh, people that work, you know, do housing projects and stuff like that that are constantly beating their tools up. They either have DeWalt or they'll acknowledge it costs a little more. I can't afford it right now. That's what I would have if I had a Blue Sky budget. Um, I do think Ryobi and Milwaukee, which Steve mentioned, build pretty good tools. I, I really do. I think they're pretty high quality. Um, there's a lot of other brands out there that are okay, too. Personally, if there is no, if there's no budgetary serious concerns... Uh, I would go with DeWalt. And I would point out for many of you like me that are long-term DeWalt owners, the thing about DeWalt tools is they, they last forever. The batteries don't, but the tools do. And a lot of us do want to upgrade to lithium-ion. And probably the most popular form factor of DeWalt tools uh, is the 18-volt. It, it seems to be the one that, that, that most people uh, tend to have. Uh, as an option. It's kind of the right balance of the power versus the size and the weight and and what have you. Uh, And those and other voltages are now available in the old footprint with lithium-ion batteries. So the old NICAD footprint. So those of you, when DeWalt made the switch and came out with these new lithium-ion tools, uh, and they do still sell the old footprints too, they initially came out with this new footprint, and their batteries were not backwards compatible. 
Why? To make a lot of us that want a lithium ion to go, you know what? I'm going to go get a whole new set, pawn my tools or whatever. I refuse to do it. I'm sitting here with a drill. Okay, my first DeWalt tool, I actually was, this is when I was in cable splicing. Uh, this is back in the early 90s. I found it in the middle of a road that fell off a truck. I went down to the contracting agency that employed us all, and I said, if anybody reports a missing drill and can identify this drill, and there's, some, there's a couple things about it that all know it's their drill, I will give it back to them. If not, I'm going to keep it. I've had it ever since. I bought a battery and a charger, and I built my entire DeWalt tool set. Uh, off of off of that uh, setup, and so it was used and abused and fell off a truck, and I found it over 20 years ago, and I still have it, and it still works. So when they came out with the lithium-ion batteries that worked with the same chargers and tools, I upgraded the batteries. So that's just a little side uh, side there for me. I will not crap on anybody for having a Milwaukee or a Ryobi or a whatever. I mean, whatever. Black. I don't care if it's Black and Decker. If it does what you want it to do, fine. But my view, the best of the best is DeWalt. I don't know if Steve would agree with that or not, but from a power and life st standpoint. Um, the next question I have is for uh, Chef Keith Snow, and it involves something that you might think that Jack Spirico would never buy. But my wife's kind of always wanted one. I've always thought they were kind of cool, and I do have uses for them. We do occasionally do bake some stuff. And I would rather, if I'm going to make bread or a cake or something, make it from good quality ingredients myself than to do it with you know junk from the grocery store or whatever. Uh, and I also do a lot with meats and mixing meats and all and making sausages. So I'm in the market for one of these stand KitchenAid stand mixers, but I don't get it. Uh, I look them up and I see two mixers that look like the same model to me, the same wattage, the same quart size of the bowl, the same everything. The accessories are almost identical, uh, and they're both called uh, the Artisan. And one's like 600 bucks, and one's like 300 bucks. Keith, help me make a decision on a KitchenAid mixer to go with my awesome new kitchen that you can hear the noise in the background that they're working on right now. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I want to answer Jack's inquiry about um, KitchenAid mixers or stand mixers in general. I'm going to try to keep this answer um, under six minutes. So let's get started. Well, Jack, you sent me two links. And um, the reason that one of those was way more, about $550, that was... Uh, 220 volt model that will not work in the U.S. That was a European based model. And that was, um, the Artisan stand mixer. Now you can get the American version of the Artisan stand mixer in about 20 colors with varying accessories for like $290 off of Amazon. Now I've owned those through the years and they are bulletproof machines. The, the KitchenAid is a really great, um, Mixer, just very well made, tough. They last a long time, and what I find is they mix really well. Now I've used other brands on our TV show, the Harvest Eden TV show. When we did something that had baking, um, we were dealing with Cuisinart, and they had sent us um, small appliances to use on the TV show and all that. And one of the things they sent was this new, latest and greatest stand mixer that was supposed to compete with KitchenAid, and they were boasting that it was 1,000 watts which it was, 1,000 watts. Now, most of the KitchenAids um, are in the neighborhood of 325 watts, which is plenty of power, by the way. That's um, If you get to the KitchenAid Professional, you, you can get 575 watts. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this Cuisinart one, I don't mean to throw them under the bus. I'm just saying my experience with it. Um, it 
it just kept breaking. So we actually sent it back to the manufacturer's rep, and they sent us a new one, and it was broken out of the box. In addition, it did not mix very well, and it had a big, you know, six-quart mixer, uh, mixing bowl, but it didn't scrape the sides very well. If you used a dough hook, it was very difficult to get it to mix. So overall, this, the design was not well. However, what it did well, and it came with a sausage making kit. That worked quite well. And you just, um, plugged that into the front. And what I liked about it was all the working parts, um, were good heavy metal. Uh, the only thing that was plastic was the pusher and I think the tray that sat on the top. But you could grind, um, any cut of beef and there was varying shaped discs and the blades were sharp so it worked uh, pretty seamlessly to to grind meat either to make patty sausage and it did have sausage attachments where you could use um, casings and make sausage so that worked very well however because you don't do a lot of baking uh, i want to point you in one of two directions um the KitchenAid mixer in, in those colors, I mean, your wife, depending upon your color scheme, that like I said, there's 20 to choose from. She may want one of those because they look really great. When you do want to bake, they mix great. And if you want to make some sausage, they have excellent attachments for that. Just make sure you don't fall for the plastic ones that are about $69. You're going to probably need to get more up towards $89, $99 to get ones that are metal. So that I would definitely do because over time, you know, when you're dealing with metal, you can soak it in bleach water. Plastic and bleach water over time don't do so well. So that's my recommendation there. And the sausage stuffing thing, um, that, that work great. So you, you can definitely, you know, stuff sausage with those, but, um, you're not probably not going to do a lot of baking given your diet. So if you want something that's strictly made for grinding meat, and making sausage, if you just do a search on Amazon meat grinder, you'll see some machines that have one horsepower motors. They're a little industrial looking. And this is the thing where Dorothy might be like, eh, you know, it looks more like a restaurant kitchen than our wonderful home kitchen. However, they are, again, bulletproof and they're designed to grind meat. That's their only job and to make sausage. So those work really well. And given that you're the survival podcast guy, you know, what if you want to make sausage and the lights are out and the generator's broken? You can get several, um, hand crank varieties, um, for under a hundred dollars that are also very well made and you can do it all by hand. Now that's, um, certainly doable. And when I lived in Montana, uh, I had a guy next to me that made thousands of sausages a year and he used a commercial grinder to grind up the meat but then he put it in you know kind of an old school sausage stuffer with with a spinning wheel and he made you know excellent retail grade beautiful sausages so that's another thing you may want to consider um but don't be tempted, in my opinion, if you're going to go with the stand mixer, I would not be tempted to go with another brand other than KitchenAid at this point because their mixers are kind of bulletproof. Now, talking about the different ones, 325 watt, the Artisan stand mixer, usually a five-quart bowl. That's the model where the top of the mixer will tilt up so you can get the bowl out or scrape it. They also make a professional series, which is the model 600, and that is where the head of the machine is fixed. So it does not tip up. What happens is it's got a, a little um, contraption where the bowl will rise. So it, it, the bowl has two little points where it sits on a little nub, so to speak. Then you just turn a handle and it raises or lowers it. That's a little more, I would say, inconvenient. 
um, for getting that bowl up and down. But if you're going to use it mainly for grinding meat, you're getting um, a heavier-duty motor, about 575 watts. That It's a little more money, but not much more. So, And it does come with a six-quart bowl uh, as opposed to a five-quart. But you can't go wrong with the kitchen made, uh, KitchenAid. And they also, again, I know you don't do a lot of um, baking and things like that, but their attachments work really well. They make a, a pasta attachment. And when we used to consume quite a bit of gluten, we've used that um, with great success. So I hope that helps you out, Jack. And uh want to let all you TSPers out there know that for a few more days, um, there's free shipping over at Harvest Eating to get your spices, including the Carolina barbecue, which has been a great success. Also, I'm still accepting people that will get a great coupon to support the Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauces that are going up on Amazon. So with that, um, now that we're into summer, I hope everybody has terrific grilling this weekend. If I can help any of you, um, just go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash harvesteating, and um, send me a question or email me, keith at harvesteating.com. Jack, thanks so much for keeping the show there. Take care. All right. Well, that pretty much answers my question on that. And we'll, we're probably, we're looking at doing, getting the mixer for a lot of things that it will do for us because occasionally we do, like I said, make breads and then we have the holidays and stuff like that. Uh, and for me, more, it's more of like, it would be great for when I'm making, uh, sausage as a mixer to be able to mix the meat and everything together, you know, when you're doing a lot of it and not have to worry about it. Um, from grinders, I, I have looked at possibly getting exactly what Keith mentioned, one of these one-horsepower grinders, kind of industrial-looking things off Amazon, and it'll probably live outside except when it's being used. And Dorothy wants a nice, pretty red, probably, stand mixer, and we'll probably go with the Artisan because it sounds like that's going to be good enough. I did pick up a little tip on grinding recently that I think will improve people's results with grinding no matter what. I've always known to get the meat as cold as possible. And if your grinder is strong enough, actually the meat even being partially frozen is a good idea. What I never knew was to do that with the grinder, and you don't have to put the whole grinder in, but the attachment part where the meat actually meets the, the blade, so to speak. If you put that in your freezer and get it ice cold before you start your grinding, your grinding will go better, and you'll have less separation of the proteins and the fats. I, I, I never actually known that, and I think that's a pretty good little advantage thing to know when you're grinding meat. Uh, my next question here. Is for Darby Simpson. Darby, I would like to know as a professional farmer yourself, what do you think the number one thing holding back young people from getting into farming is today and, and what they can do to, to make it happen, so to speak? So what say you, Darby? Jack, well, I do think there are a couple of key issues that can keep people from uh, jumping into a full-time farming business. Um, what I want to first go through real quick and highlight are a few things that are not issues. So regardless of where you're at and what you're thinking, from my perspective, these are things that should not hold you back. Uh, first of all, there is plenty of demand for any kind of locally raised product, anything from vegetables to meats, soaps, dairy, y you name it. There is a demand for that product. Uh, a lot of us small guys locally, you know, there's more demand uh, than there is production. We're having a, having a hard time keeping up. Um, there's also no shortage of, of outlets to sell your products through. You've got farmer's markets. You've got restaurants. You've got health food stores, small grocery chains, even large grocery chains. You've got big co-ops that you can funnel into like Stonyfield or uh, Organic Valley, things like that. So um, selling your product honestly is not an issue. Okay. There's also a ton of educational material available. There are conferences you can attend. There are phenomenal books out there you can read. 
uh, magazines you can subscribe to. You can get guys that mentor you, teach you, impart wisdom to you. You can do consulting uh, one-on-one with guys that are doing what it is you want to do. You can even do internships, anything from a week to a year in just about any niche of farming. Those exist. You can go get yourself educated and learn the how-to uh, before you totally jump in on your own, you know, and it really reduces your, your chances of failure. I'll also say that I don't think finances are a big issue. Um, that might shock a lot of people, but they're really not. Um, you know, we started our business with 50 chickens back in 2007 with funds we set aside, and we have just reinvested the the, the profits every time uh, for the first three or four years and just built up the things that we needed to, to expand our business. Um, we've made good decisions. We've had a lot of uh, good fortune along the way, but, you know, honestly, to steal a, a term from Dave Ramsey, we built this business from a car table, built it from scratch, and it's worked well for us. There are loans available if you want to go that route. You had a guy recently that talked about that, started a beef herd with a, a loan he got. Um, that's an option. I don't think you necessarily have to go that way, but it does exist, you know. Um, so the things I think that are big hurdles for people that really hold them back, num- number one is just the sheer difficulty of farming and the fear of failure. And make no mistake, it is hard. I mean, this is hard. It's physically hard. It's mentally hard. Uh, you've got to have a good business acumen. Uh, then you throw in on top of all that Mother Nature and stuff blows up in your face. Uh, it is tough. Um, but that's something that each individual person just has to wrestle with and overcome mentally on their own. There are those of us out here who have been through it. We will guide you. We will partner with you. We'll encourage you. But that's something you've really got to overcome by yourself. Nobody can do that except you. But I'm here to tell you, you can't overcome it, and you can do this. Um, the biggest thing, in my opinion, is is access to land. But I think there are ways around that, too. Um, you can rent or lease property, anything from an acre to 100 acres. It just depends on what you want to do. Um, you know, a lot of guys that have some farmland that are just leasing it out, trust me when I tell you, most of them don't care where the money comes from. And if, if they're leasing out some property, let's just say for 200 bucks an acre, and you come along and say, hey, I'll give you $250 an acre, and I, I want to lease this 10 acres, and, and uh, you, you know, I'll, I'll pay right now for the whole year, and they'll jump on it. You know, if, if they can get more money uh, and, and know that you're going to be good for it, they're going to take the bait, and they'll lease it to you. A lot of guys maybe might be a little bit hesitant, but then when you say, hey, I'm going to put it in uh, chemical-free vegetables or chemical-free perennial pasture and I'm going to put cows on it or whatever, you can swoon them and win them over. So that's an option. Anybody that wants to rent or lease property, I'd strongly encourage you to read Greg Judy's first book. He goes through how to write contracts and write lease agreements that protects you, protects the landowner, sets you up for success in the long term. There's just a, a ton of knowledge that you can learn from that book if that's a, a, a route you want to go. And the other thing I want to mention is you may not need a whole bunch of land. You may be thinking, hey, i got to have 100 acres. Well, maybe not. It depends on what you want to do. Um, if you want to do a market garden, you know, one to three acres is all you need. You might be able to rent one to three acres with a house on it work a full-time job and start your farming enterprise on the side and take advantage of, you know, all the, the, the tax benefits that come with that whole situation and really just be leaps and bounds ahead right out of the gate. Uh, you might be able to lease some marginal land that nobody else is using on a farm. Uh, woods, for instance, and run pigs in it. 
or some scrub brush areas and put sheep or goats in it, whatever it is you want to do. Um, there are just a lot of opportunities uh, where you can lease a very small amount of property and start a full-time farming business. You don't necessarily have to have 100 acres, okay? Um, so don't let that be a hurdle in your mind. And then lastly, you know, there are partnerships that you can look at. Um, you've kind of talked about this a little bit on your show. Uh, there's a guy out in southeast Missouri I've talked about a lot. His name's Cody Holmes, Rockin' H Ranch, and it, they have like a thousand acres. They're doing tons of meat. What they've done is they've they've brought young people that want to farm in and set them up in their their own business enterprises on the farm, doing chemical free vegetables and milk and um, honey and mushrooms, all this stuff. Okay, and then they market that product for them through their brand name. So there are partnerships available. You just got to find the right situation, the right opportunity, but something like that also exists. It just a little, little bit more, uh, you know, personality's got to mash. Uh, you know, there, there's a little bit more in, that goes into that as opposed to you just leasing property and doing whatever you want to do, but it is a possibility. So, Jack, those are my thoughts. And uh, listen, if you're interested in farming, we need you in this fight. Take the plunge, do something, start investigating how to make this a reality. I just want to encourage you to do that. So uh, to learn more about me, you can visit my website at DarbySimpson.com. I've got a lot of free blog articles out there that I've written on the how-to of farming and farming business, marketing. There's all kinds of free information out there. Feel free to check that out if you'd like. You can sign up for our email blog subscription. Um, and then lastly, for those that are interested, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consulting if you want to go deeper. And you can read more about that on the website. Again, that is DarbySimpson.com. Jack, thanks so much for letting me call in and tackle this question. Take care. Well, thanks for that, Darby. And thank you for all you do to not only farm yourself, but to work to educate others so that they can do it as well. We need millions of new farmers. Literally, we need millions of new farmers in the next 20 years. The average farmer in America today is in his 60s. If we don't put new farmers into place, everything will be mechanized and run by the corporate giants. Uh, and we'll have less choices and less nutritional, uh, you know, things in our life. So thank you for being an educator, not just a farmer. And it is hard work, and thank you for doing it. My next question is for Tim Glantz on the Expert Council. Tim, of course, is the force behind Old Grouch Military Surplus. He's a chief warrant officer in the United States Army National Guard, very familiar with military surplus vehicles and ham radio. So I decided to send him this ham radio question, even though it originally came in for Stephen Harris. His question is from Nathan. Nathan says, what's the best long-distance ham band to get started in? Two-meter uh, band in my area is quiet. Nearest amateur radio group is at least 100 miles away. So what say you, Mr. Glantz, on, uh, on connecting with people as a new ham radio operator? Hi, Jack, and everybody out there at TSP Land. This is Tim Glantz with an expert panel question uh, answer from Nathan, who asked, what is the best long-distance ham band to get started in? And added some more information that the nearest ham activity that he's found is 100 miles from him. Well, Nathan, uh, without knowing more specifics of exactly who you want to talk to and how far they are, it's hard to give specific advice. But if you're looking for over 100 miles, you're going to have to be on HF, which is going to take your general class license. And I would look at 80 meters, 60 meters, and 40 meters. 80 meters primarily after the sun goes down uh, is going to get you from 50 miles and 100 miles out to about five to 600 reliably. 60 meters, it's channelized so you don't have a lot of bandwidth, but it'll work good long distance in those ranges pretty much day and night. 
and 40 meters during the day will get those distances and will get you some good long-range DX contacts where you can talk around the world. Now, if your goal is to talk as long as, as far as possible, uh, you're going to want your antenna, if you're going with a simple dipole, to be as high as possible. Uh, the higher it is above the ground and the lower the angle is to the horizon, the better off you are. If your goal is to talk within a 100 to 500 mile range, which is a very practical goal for a lot of folks uh, doing this from a prepping standpoint, because that's an area of interest for all of us to gather information from, you're going to want to do what's called near vertical incident sky wave. And this is where you put a dipole antenna a quarter wavelength or closer to the ground. And what that has the effect of doing is reflecting most of your RF energy transmitted straight up to the sky. And when it does that, it's almost like if you visualize a fire hose spraying straight up and it all comes down pretty close to you. Well, you're doing the same thing with the energy. It's going to go up. It's going to hit the ionosphere. It's going to bounce back down. And you'll get reliable communications from uh, 50 miles out to about 300. And it's a good way to get over ridges that you can't get over closer with VHF or anything else if you've got in a mountainous area. So I hope that helps. Uh, that's about as good as I can get without knowing the specifics of your situation. So if you wanted a little more advice, you can email me through my website at oldgrouch.com. And I uh, hope this helps, and I hope this helps some other folks, and thanks for the great question. Hey, Jack, it's Jesse in San Diego. Uh, how would you deal with a coyote problem where it's not a single coyote, but a pack of coyotes that come across a property? Uh, my cousin lives on a, on a, on a four acres or so, uh, north part of San Diego County, and every time he gets chickens, anything, they never last very long because he has packs of coyotes come across the property and take them. Um, any idea or suggestions would be helpful because he's getting tired of buying chickens, and he gets quite attached. It's an emotional thing for him. So <laughs> any help would be appreciated. Thanks, man. Uh, hope you're staying dry. You are asking one of those questions that has no simple answer. There is no talisman or repellent or anything that will keep coyotes away from your chickens, especially if they're out free-ranging around the property the way a chicken wants to range. Uh, coyotes are canine, and like all canines, they're extremely intelligent. And like we love our dogs, guys. I know all of us do, but the canine is a savage, brutal predator. And your dog is separated from that savage brutality by the fact that you feed and care for him and have made him part of your pack. Uh, uh, just about any canine that's forced to go live in the wild that's large enough to do it anyway will become a pack animal. And if, if you want to see savagery as you watch canines take down an animal larger than themselves, it is a horrible, horrible death. So as much as I love dogs, I understand the innate what a canine is. And that's what you need to understand about a coyote. you got an animal that can see better than you, that can run faster than you, that can hear better than you, that can smell better than you, and coyotes will climb fences that dogs won't. Uh, they'll do what it takes to get a meal, and a chicken is just too good of a meal for a coyote to not have. So you have a couple choices. One is they have to be with very high voltage, uh, very well-installed uh, electric fencing, and you will still have the occasional uh, yote get in. It just will happen, but it will it will help a lot. You have to kill them, and the best way is to shoot them. 
and you you'll never kill them all and you'll never shoot them all but if you kill a lot of them and shoot a lot of them you'll have a, they'll they'll go somewhere else in general again you'll never get rid of all of them but you will reduce it or you need to get an animal that will protect your other animals and is not only capable of scaring coyotes away but needs to have the capability to kill them because sooner or later if coyotes are challenged by your own canines your personal canine core uh your defense mechanisms especially in places where there's high numbers of them and there's a lot of pressure uh on them to find food to eat you will end up from having a dog that was protecting your land to a dog the coyotes killed um i would not put you know a labrador retriever by itself out on a property as a defensive dog against coyotes If I'm going to put a dog out there, it's going to be by itself. We're talking about like a well-trained, big Anatolian Shepherd or Pyrenees or something like that that will literally crush the skull of a coyote, a, a trained livestock guardian dog. And I probably don't want one in this situation. I probably want two. And that gets rather expensive. If I'm going to scale down the dog and I'm going to put some kind of dog out there, like, and then now we got to find a dog <laughs> that we can afford, that we can take care of, that we can feed to defend a chicken that won't eat the chicken itself. Uh, th this can be difficult. It really, it really can be difficult. But as long as you work with the dog and train it, I believe just about any dog can be trained and not harm your chickens, but then we need to make sure it can also stand up to a coyote. Remember, I have a pit bull pointer mix. You're talking about a bird dog mix with a bull terrier. I mean, and he's sleeping on my feet right now. This should be a dog that you can't train to not attack chickens and ducks and whatever. And we've trained Charlie not to, so it can be done. One breed that's tough as nails, that's absolutely fearless, um, but you, I would want to have three of these things running around with them, as bad as it sounds like the coyotes are out there, or the curs. Uh, there's a bunch of different, uh, you know, sub levels of the cur, but, you know, the blackmouth cur, the leopard uh, Calhoun cur, uh, these dogs are fearless and they're tough. And the problem with that is I would have a big fear that if you had a pack of coyotes and one of these guys running around out there, its fearlessness could get it really hurt and killed. So your best answer is a big honking pair of livestock guardian dogs. And they'll do it, and they it will take time to train them, and they will have to grow. And it, if you buy them pre-trained and already grown up, they're very expensive, and it's a lot of investment to protect a chicken. But it will, you know, it'll it'll get it done. Um, these these big uh, livestock guardian dogs, they will they will, and it's the the way they they act too. They will grab an animal like a coyote by the head, and in one chomp, the skull caves in. I've, I've seen the results of it. It's not pretty. Animals like curs, they have to fight that they're similar size. They don't have the overall power. They can't do that. They have to fight the animal on its own terms, and they work well in packs. And that's why. But then you got to develop that pack instinct for defense versus, hey, we're bored today. Let's eat the chickens ourselves. So the, the best option is probably going to be paddocking these birds in electric net fencing. And and then coupling that with a dog. So you've got a dog running around. The birds are inside the electronet. The electronet keeps your dog from eating the birds because he doesn't really want them that bad. The dog keeps the coyotes away. Uh, or you got to start shooting them. And you got to shoot them and shoot them and shoot them and shoot them and shoot them and, because they are smart. And that will help them figure out this is a bad place to go. 
Otherwise, there's, there's nothing you can do. You either have to protect the birds, you either have to kill the coyotes, or you have to put something there that will kill the coyotes and won't kill the birds. There, there, again, there's no, you can buy all of the repellents and spread sulfur and whatever. Coyote doesn't give a damn about that. Um, they are kind of the, the, the honey badger of predators in North America. They're, they're tough, they're smart, they're vicious. You notice I didn't say they're bad. Or they're horrible. Or they should all die. Um, they have a place. They have a place in our ecosystems. When they start feeding on our, our livestock, though, we have to take corrective measures. Instead of trying to eliminate them, what we want to do is create an environment where they fear our property for whatever reason, and they stick to doing what they're supposed to do, like controlling jackrabbits and rodents. That's the, and scavenging. That's, that's their purpose. They are not a top predator. They're not supposed to be a top predator. And when I say a top predator, I'm talking about something like the wolf, right? They don't, they are not of the size and the power and the capability of a wolf. Back when, uh, this, this, this continent was, you know, blanketed by 50 million buffalo, a coyote that tries to take a bound of buffalo is going to end up stomping his guts out. I mean, that's just flat roar an elk, like a bull elk or a full-size cow elk will stomp a coyote to death. Even a group of them will probably end up injured. They are the North American jackal is another way to think about them. So if the wolf is the African wild dog, then the coyote is there as the jackal. Um, I don't hate coyotes, but I hate in instances what they do and what's necessary to control them. So you've got to kill and you've got to get rid of, and you've got to protect, and you, you if you're going to put, you know, electrical strand on existing fencing, and let's say you had chain link fencing, you want a low strand on the outside, so if they try to go under, that wet nose hits it, and you want it just leaning over the top, to where when the two paws go up, and that, that wet, cold nose that we all love on our dogs, hits that fence, you make good contact, and you put a piss load of volts through the coyote. And I'm telling you, they still figure out how to get over. But it will help. That's the best I can do for you, you guys. Probably hear noise in the kitchen in the background. I'm going to wrap up today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember to call your questions into the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK for a new uh, show next week. Remember to email me your questions for the expert panel, TSP expert. Uh, question in the subject line and send that to Jack at the survival podcast.com. Quick update. I keep getting emails from you guys worried about the flooding in Texas. The flooding in Texas has not affected me. I have a muddy field with water turtles, like, like lake turtles in it, and I'm miles from any lakes or streams. I don't know where the turtles are coming from. We have standing water. We have muck. We have mud. There's places that stink, but th this is not what you would think of as flooding. Please understand those of you that don't live here. The, the, the imagery you're seeing of Texas is the worst thing the media can take a picture of and show you. That's how they get you to pay attention. That's how they do it with all things. But there are a lot of people dealing with some really tough crap in this state right now. Everything from the minor inconveniences I do. I have some, some blight issues and stuff, and my, my garden is just it's suffering. I'm getting tomatoes and peppers, but the plants are getting weaker and weaker. Just too much water. Um, so that's an inconvenience, but there's people whose houses have been destroyed. There was a family who was visiting others and the whole house was pushed off the foundation and went down the river and they called one of the people they knew or family members they knew to tell them they loved them while they were in the house with it moving. And I think everybody was lost and never found except the father was found and he, uh, is in serious condition. 
but you know, as he comes out of that, he's going to learn that his two children, his wife, are gone and missing and never found. So there is some pretty bad things that have gone on this year weather-wise. It's why you want to stay weather alert. I know I've been a theme with that lately, but you know, I posted a picture of like storm clouds and funnel clouds forming outside of my house this week and said, you know, I'm about tired of this, and I am. So it's real to me because it's it's in my face every day. We got a couple more days of it, and then we're supposed to come out of this for a while, and 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 I, I really hope we do. But there's uh, multiple people have been killed in, in flooding this year. Multiple people have been killed. By tornadoes this year, there was a mother and a father, I believe in Arkansas, who died laying over top of their child and their child, they gave their life saving their child. There was another man somewhere, it might have been his wife with them too, but uh, they had a dog and they brought the dog into their safe area, they always say that on the news, and they, the man ended up dead and the dog underneath the man, the man saved his dog with his last action. Um, these, these are real stories and these are why we really prep. Remember to address the primary survival need, food, water, shelter, energy, security, and health and sanitation with your preps and your daily activities. Have your, your bug out bag ready if you have to go from flooding, your blackout kit ready so that if you're without power, you can bring in your additional uh, uh, preparations quickly. We talked about that recently with an episode with Stephen Harris, your weather radio, your weather application All the practical preparedness things that we talk about all the time, make sure you're doing those. But on the other side, remember my little discussion to you about not not doing things because somebody might take it from you someday. Our lives are meant to be lived as human beings on this planet as peaceful warriors, not to live in cowardice, not to be afraid, not to use what might happen as an excuse for inaction, to the, do the best we can with what we have while we have the opportunity. They'll lay you in the ground someday. They'll put some dates on both sides of things, and in the middle will be a dash. That dash is you. Make your dash matter. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution.